emergency medicine extract with Sanjay and Mike. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to this installment of EMA. Or welcome, if you're a first-time listener, first-time caller. Oh, no, no, no. I've seen the trends in our viewership and listenership. There's no, there's no first time. No, no. All we get is total numbers. It could be that every month it dumps out and Good more point. people come on. Good right? point. See, so that's every, why it's, it's all new. Every, it's a rebirth every month. Yeah, we don't know. You know, actually, I take that back. We do know because we get email. We get from fan the listeners mail and so, the well, opposite. Of yeah, fan it's not mail. always fan mail, but we definitely get emails. And I gotta say. That the you know the February EMA just came out uh, you know a few days ago and it's been blowing up our our fan box right <laughs> having to do good. with the great idea we had on a whim of opening our eighties theme the Sunjay stirs and Mike stirs yeah all eighties yes. eighty old fashions yeah eighties music eighties video games. Honestly, you know, as we come up on the five-year mark of doing this, I can't think of an intro that's gotten quite as much feedback, both in person, because, you know, we work with a lot of ER docs, too, who talk to us about it, as well as you out there listening who sent us stuff about it. I'm starting to think there's actually a good idea. Yeah, but there was the one fellow, and I'm sorry, the name, I I don't have it in front of me. I want to say it was Jeff. He wrote in and sent us a link to a bar that just opened up in San Luis Obispo with this theme. So first we have to, I mean, I'm not saying that this is going to happen. He suggested we take legal action. He did suggest we take legal action, but absent legal action, hey, I know a guy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> know a guy who knows a guy. Ipso facto, up in smoke. <laughs> who could have known what a tragedy Sanjay Sturz and Mike Sturz <laughs> opens up next door. Yeah, you know, it's, and I've been very inundated in the 80s, actually, recently. And we kind of went through a period, I feel like we we're talking about a lot, and we've kind of taken a break for a minute, because I got a new TV. I think I talked to you about this. It's a Samsung TV. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, you know, yeah. they have, like, I don't know how TVs come with, like, million channels preloaded oh, yeah. now, no, right? No, Samsung has its own network. They all do. Yeah. You have an LG. There's an LG network. But it's not like a network. It's like... 500 yeah, channels. Yeah, yeah it's no, a it's, network. It's channels. Like a, yeah, you're right. It's, it's a channel. It's a streaming channel. It's streaming channels. I don't know where based. they come from. They're all free. They came with the yeah. TV. And one of them is the Family Ties channel. Family okay? Ties channel. It's not an 80s channel. It's not like Nick it's and a Knight. Michael P. Keaton channel. It says on the little logo on the side, Family Ties Network. Meredith Baxter Bernie. And it's just 24-7 of Family Ties. And now I've named two of them. You got to have Justine Bateman. And go ahead. What was the name of the dad and the other sister? Uh, Michael Gross. Michael Gross, Was yes, the dad. Right. Tina Yothers, obviously, was a sister. That's it. That's no, it. that's it. Little boy Andy <laughs> added late to the show. I forgot about it. <laughs> Brian Bonsall. <laughs> wow, you've been really... No, I knew getting... this before. Yeah, yeah, sure. How many hours of the Family Ties channel have you watched? Too many. I just, if something's, I just, I, you know, I haven't seen Family Ties, I feel like, since I watched it the first time. So to go through it all again, you know, his like big breakup with Ellen and meets <laughs> at the train station and stuff, it's like taking me back. Feeling wow. good about it. The, the TV was worth it <laughs> just, just to get the this Family, family Ties, ties channel. You previously have Samsung. See, I have Samsung. I, I have not. So I have, I've known that for years that you could watch Family Ties 24-7 if you had a certain kind of mental yeah. pathology you know where that, that's that just, would be useful. That's just how my brain works with these yes. 80s. It's imprint. Sure. The actors, the whole the yeah. episodes, it's all imprint. Yeah. It never goes away. Yeah. These papers we review, oh. 
I actually have to listen to them a few times. I really do need that spaced repetition. Oh, yeah. no, I've, been, I've been in the clinical areas, and he's like, hey, what do you think about this? I'm like, you literally did that paper last month. He's like, no, nah, I think that was yours. I'm like, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, pull it up. And he's like, it does sound like me. Yeah. <laughs> no. Ridiculous. No, that's it's completely brilliant. true. One year, but then, out the other. you know, the other side, you're like, who won the Miss Bayside contest? <laughs> it's like, no, I can tell you every year I know the whole thing. <laughs> It's so strange how this brain of it's mine good, works. It's an interesting point that we don't talk enough about the Bayside Tigers. <laughs> I used to have a Bayside Tigers t-shirt. I wore all the time. I love that shirt. What happened to it? I outwore it. It's gone. I didn't need it's one. Like, it's like my daughter Sophia's scarf, her oh, scarfy. Oh, God. That thing is, that thing <laughs> is like, hazmat to no, hold that. I, there's nothing left of it. Yeah. So my scarf, I guess these things are called lovies. That's what yeah. you're supposed to call them. They're like some, secu- you know, your security blanket or whatever. And many years ago, we were actually traveling through France in Paris, and my wife buys scarves, right? It's like one of her things, right? And she's got drawers full of them. She knows she has a problem. She's sought professional help. It hasn't taken. So she was going through Paris, and she had this, these two scarves. Yeah, scarf philia is yeah, something it's, it's, we don't talk yeah, about enough. It's not. You know, I've been waiting for an EMA paper on it. When I see it, we're going to do a big set. We might have to do a whole special episode. Yeah. But anyway, my wife had these couple scarves, and my daughter just liked the texture. of. She wasn't little. She was like... I don't want to say like eight. I mean, she wasn't really little and she liked the texture of it. And so she basically took these scarves and they became this thing that she slept with like every day. And she would put it over her face, like not a scarf, but a, like, what is that called? The, the wedding thing? Veil, like a veil. Like every night she would put it over her face and my daughter never gets sick ever, right? Like she's been sick like twice in her whole life. And so we have this idea that this, this veil that she wears at night prevents it. Anyway, it's a really, really important thing to her. She is now almost 18 years old. She's 17 and three quarters years old. And she still has this thing, right? But now through years of existence, it has like worn and twisted. It mostly smells like dirt and maple syrup. It's sticky. It's the most vile thing. But she still uses it every night. I had to drop her off at school today, today, you know, just whatever. we, We arranged that. She brought it in the car and then when she got out, she left it in my car. She's like, when are you going to be home? And I'm like, I don't know, later on tonight. And she's like, oh, be home before five. I need my scarf. <laughs> she, all her friends, all her friends, they just had winter formal. She was like the winter formal queen and all this. They all know about it. Nobody's disgusted by it. It's, it's the weirdest thing in the world. She is almost a grown adult. She's got a, and now it's about six by six inches. And you know, now that we're on the topic of Sophia, uh, yes. shall we would the, share the big news with the listenership? Oh yeah, my, woo! Yeah, this week my daughter committed to run track at UCSD, and she got her little track scholarship and signed her little national letter of intent. And I am a hundred percent thrilled because she survived her soccer season without blowing out her knee, which was my big worry: is that before she signed her letter of intent, she would get an injury because, like, half the girls go down every season with ACL injuries and stuff like that. And so she made it through. And she signed her letter, and we're super psyched that she's going to be a UCSD Triton, which Sunjay. I was. That's right. It's good to see Sophia following in my footsteps. (laughs) I got to say. I'm I'm, I'm flattered. You're a proud father. I'm a a proud proud father once removed. That's right. And I think that's fair. I think that's a fair claim. So the other big news is that though she survived her soccer season without an ACL rupture, I did not. Yeah. <laughs> Mike so, blew out his ACL with a non-contact 
I was, injury. Well, that's how you blow out ACLs. Yeah, yeah two right. weeks ago, I stepped to throw a punch boxing and my leg exploded. And so uh, now it's feeling much better. The swelling's gone down. But yes, I am on a pre-op schedule you know, now, which is delightful because I've had two of these before. And it's super fun. All of you out there know. Remind me after this taping, got to do the lever test. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now that the swelling's down, you can yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, All we'll, right. we'll take a video Something of the lever to test. Do. You know, it's actually, there's some announcements we were supposed to make this month. Yeah, well, we haven't, we haven't not made them yet. No, I'm just, I just <laughs> it sort of came to me now. failed to remember to make them yet. The first one being the EMA Daily, which is a new initiative. Yep. Basically, uh, it, I think it's an opt-in sort of a thing, so it's not going to come to you automatically. If you are interested in getting one of, uh, basically, it's one paper a day, and it's just the editor's commentary into your inbox, in your email, sign up. Yeah, because I'm sure you don't have enough in your inbox, right? None of us do. You know, but there are those services out there that sort of provide one paper a day or whatever. So now we got one too. Yeah, we're competing with those guys, whoever they are. Whoever you are, <laughs> we're we on got, to you. Yeah, we stole your idea, Sanjay Sturz and <laughs> Mike Sturz. Sanjay Sturz and Mike Sturz, EMA Daily. Daily. It's called. 80, it's called Derivative Ideas by Sanjay and Mike. And there's a whole list of 80 them. papers a day. <laughs> 80 minutes apart from each other. <laughs> no. It's like it's like lost, you know, like every 80 minutes you have to read the paper, like the world will explode. And then the other announcement is we have a new addition to the EMA family. If you right. listen to the MRAP side of things, which I'm sure most of you do, we have somebody new doing the ultra, ultra summaries right. well, Megan with Fix. Mel. Yes. Megan Fix is splitting up because Mel, you know, let's be honest, he's getting a little long in the tooth, right? So he can't handle the ultra, ultra summary by himself anymore. And so now he is sharing those duties with Dr. Megan Fix. And, you know, I actually don't know her. We've communicated via email and stuff like that. But she is a professor over at University of Utah. And uh, well, so she's the she's the vice chair over there. And she's you may know her from some corpendium work. Yeah, she, she does, does a lot of corpendium work. Listening. She has three boys, which sounds very trying. Oh, that's <laughs> terrible. Yeah. No and, wonder she wants to spend time doing MRAP. Yeah, but she seems seems like a lovely human via our correspondences. So welcome. Megan. Yeah, and I've listened to the ultra ultra summaries and they're uh they're great. So We're happy cool. to have you. And then this month, what do we got on tap this month? We got 20 papers. That's true. First, and then they get they, they get ultra summarized. Ultra summarized they by get, Justin Jenny. They get condensed, squished. Yeah. Blah, they kind of they kind of half the length and then half it again. And then they, something like and that. Then they and then double they double it, it. But then they rehab it. So, <laughs> so it's, it's it complicated. Gets there. It's a formula. Uh, <laughs> it's a formula. And triple yeah, we all know how Sanjay is. What is it this month? It's uh, propensity score. Propensity matching. score. So something matching. we see all the time. I think I have a couple of papers actually this month that are propensity score matched. So that'll be really interesting to hear. I have Kenneth's one where I we wish talk about they it. had done propensity score matching. Maybe if they'd listened to this, they would have known. Spoiler alert, I have one paper that's not very good, uh, at oh, least well, in terms of the method. That's great. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Well, let's just dive into it then. Paper chase. Abstract number one. Effect of remifentanil versus neuromuscular blockers during RSI on successful intubation without major complications among patients at risk of aspiration, a randomized clinical trial, and this is by Griot et al. from JAMA. And 
This one, actually, we were asked to cover this one by our friend and colleague, Al Sacchetti. So we figured if Al wants to know about it, let's make it the paper chaser. Let's put it right at the front. So RSI is basically the standard approach for ED intubations, combining pre-oxygenation with some form of sedative, hypnotic agent. And then usually what we use is a rapid onset neuromuscular blocker like sucks or rock. Although in my mind, it's not very common. In the introduction to this paper, the authors actually spend a lot of time saying that there are instances where a provider might be faced with a situation where there's some hesitation around using a neuromuscular blocker. And the case they kind of say specifically is like, well, what about a neuro case, right? Where you need to do some repeat exams or your consultant's about to come down. So you may have some hesitation around it there. Anecdotally, there are reports and small studies of using remifentanil instead of a neuromuscular blocker during RSI, and they show satisfactory intubating conditions at 90 seconds. I'd actually never heard of doing this before, so I looked back at some of those papers, and there are a few. Every like five or six years, one seems to pop up where they try to find the optimal dose to use or the optimal patient to use it on. It's been going on for like 20, 25 years. I mean, I definitely think there's times when I don't want to give a neuromuscular blocker or, you know, because usually it's not that circumstance for me. It's usually something about like, am I really sure I can get this airway kind of thing? And I'm a little nervous. They got Ludwig's or they've got, you know, some trauma to their jaw and I'm like just kind of worried about it. So yeah, I, I feel like there's, there's space for this. Yeah, there's, there's something. And remifentanil is a potent synthetic opioid with a rapid onset and short duration of action that's used primarily in the OR for analgesia and general anesthesia in combination with other medications. This is not something I have seen used very commonly in the ED. It's just a synthetic opioid like fentanyl derivative. It's just a faster, stronger fentanyl derivative. Well, don't let the drug dealers find out about this guy. (laughs) So this is a multi-center, randomized, open-label, non-inferiority trial among 1,150 adults who were at risk of aspiration who were getting intubated in the OR from 15 hospitals in France from October 2019 to April 2021. And what's interesting is we love acronyms, of course, right? And It's nowhere in the paper, the acronym for this trial, but sometimes when I look at a randomized trial, and this one is a really well done one, I like to look at like the clinicaltrials.gov equivalent to see, you know, did they change anything from when they first decided to do it to now look at their protocol? And if you're, you know, into looking at randomized control trials, I think that's a nice habit to get into to look at what were they attempting to do when they started this thing, make sure they didn't, you know, change targets on you or something. There, they had an acronym listed. And I love it. And I can't believe they didn't put it in the paper. Maybe they decided someone, someone didn't like it or something. It doesn't translate. They don't say actually what it stands for. You know, those clinicaltrials.gov things are short, but it was called the Remy Crush Trial. And Hulk. Smash. Remy, Remy Crush. Remy Smash. Smash, exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. Remy Crush. So Remy Crush I know trial. a guy named Remy, too. And he's like this big Nigerian guy. Yeah. <laughs> he could Rem- crush. Remy Crush. If he's not a doctor, but like uh, if that was in the title, I probably said it to him. <laughs> so they were basically, they took patients in this trial and randomized them to receive either a neuromuscular blocker, which was a mig per kg of sucks or rocuronium, which was just under 600 patients. So it's a pretty big study. Or Remy Fentanyl, three to four micrograms per kilogram, also just under 600 patients. 
immediately after receiving a hypnotic. The primary outcome was first attempt success without complication. So something like aspiration or something like that, kind of a clean first pass intubation. And the non-inferiority margin was set at 7%. The patients looked to be well-balanced at baseline with an average age of about 50 years in both groups, most of them being ASA class one or two and about 60% needing urgent or emergent surgery as opposed to scheduled surgeries. This kind of went into the aspiration risk. They had to be like rushed to the OR. Only three patients crossed over from one arm to another arm, and only seven were lost to follow-up out of almost 1,200 patients. That's really good. They stuck to their protocol. intubated in the OR. Where yeah. are they going? Well, that's true. But you could see a crossover, right? That no, one the crossover for sure you could maybe see, not. but the loss to follow-up seems a little bit A little unlikely. too high for you. It seems a little unlikely. Like dude's in the OR intubated. He's like, I'm out. That's true. Well, you know, data goes missing in a 1,200 patient study. They just do. Yeah. The primary outcome of successful tracheal intubation on first attempt without major complications occurred in 66% of the Remy fentanyl group and in 71% of the neuromuscular blocker group. So the adjusted between group difference was 6.1%. With the point estimate around that going from minus 11.6% to minus 0.5%, doesn't cross zero, therefore it was inferior. Yeah. It's not, not, not inferior. Because these <laughs> it non, is inferior. These non-inferiority trials are yeah. always, you know, even every time before we tape one of these, we have to look it up because there's like eight different categories yeah. you can fall into. This one, inferior. They provide the per-protocol results as well, which are essentially the same since only three patients crossed over. First attempt success, not considering these adverse events, most of which were really minor, was actually very high in both groups. It was 88% in the Remy fentanyl group versus 93.5% in the traditional neuromuscular blockade group, but the overall rate of severe adverse events was also higher in the Remy fentanyl group, 2.1% versus 0.5%, as were rates of hemodynamic instability at 3.3% versus 0.5%. So overall, this is really a well-done trial. The way they organized it, the way they randomized patients in real time, the way they stuck to the protocol, their statistical plan was outstanding, including doing multiple subgroup analyses, which I didn't go over in a lot of detail here. They ran a regression model. They imputed missing data. But at the end, it was limited by the open label design. But in truth, that probably should bias towards fentanyl. I would think. If they usually were. open label. If you're just playing the percentages, they usually bias in favor of the new intervention right. because so, everybody's excited. And so trying. the fact that it was worse is maybe even worse. Maybe worse. Uh, and it was not done in the ED. So the authors sort of say, okay, it was inferior, mea culpa. <laughs> you know, we really <laughs> thought this was going to work. But they sort of suggest that this wide confidence interval leaves some room for future study. Mm-hmm, uh, you fair. know, I see it. I do too. But I guess for me, I'm kind of like, it wasn't better on any front, well, you know? Okay. I see your point, but there is, okay, the one time where you see these, you know, failures that don't test, okay, usually when there's a new intervention, especially if it's open label, the treatment effect is extra large. And over time, the treatment effect shrinks, right? As it starts being applied more often and outside of research settings and stuff. There are occasions in the literature when that's not true. And that's particularly when there's a learning curve around something. So 
usually I think of that around like a procedure. Like there's a new procedure and you got a corkscrew, you got to put into a basilar artery and it takes like years to actually figure out how to do it. Like it makes perfect sense, but you know, it's just hard to learn how to do. And maybe there's something about the timing of remifentanil and stuff like that that could account for that wide confidence interval or that, you know, that sort of very wide point estimate that but over you know time what, could though, shrink. But the truth is that I, I hear what you're saying. I think that's yeah. a good like methodological yeah. learning point. But in this remifentanil case, I just don't think that's it. There's been a lot of papers okay. published on using remifentanil at different doses to find the. They have agreed on all this stuff. We know exactly how to do it. It just didn't work here. But I think your prior point of like, well, if you're not going to use a neuromuscular blocker at all, right? Like, you know, if you're just going to use, you know, propofol or ketamine or something like that, how well does it fare then? That for me is an interesting open question, but that's not addressed in this paper. But maybe that'll be next. Good point. Edit this commentary. In this large and well-done randomized non-inferiority trial from 15 operating rooms in France, the authors found that remifentanil was inferior to neuromuscular blockers during RSI. They suggest that the wide confidence interval leaves room that it could still be non-inferior, but there were no trends in any of the outcomes assessed favoring remifentanil, and the non-blinded nature should bias towards a positive finding, making me less enthusiastic for use, and for future studies on the topic. In the era of short-acting neuromuscular blockers and reversal agents, I see the potential indications for remifentanil to be pretty rare. So if you are going to add this to your toolbox, for now, I'd put it close to the bottom unless new data becomes available. Abstract number two, zone one endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta versus resuscitative thoracotomy for patient resuscitation after severe hemorrhagic shock. This is by Crowley et al. and it's in JAMA Surgery. So, resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta, Roboa. Resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta is the new thing just watch out for ischemic limb. Remember, you can leave it in, so put it in and get it out and do it fast and get it done before your patient's leg is gone. Put it in and take it out. Before your patient's leg is gone. Put it in and take it out. Before your patient's leg is gone. Put it in and take it out. Before your patient's leg is gone. Put it in and take it out. Before your patient's leg is gone. His leg is gone. His leg is gone. His leg is gone. His leg is gone. It's gone. This is a fun topic. On the one hand, it seems like a great idea. Right. Effectively, it's an aortic cross clamp that has roughly the same indications as a traditional ED thoracotomy cross clamp. So basically, trunk trauma, right? Chest or abdomen, blunt or penetrating. So it has that same thing. And generally, the balloon is placed through a femoral artery puncture below the level of the subclavian, above the level of the celiac arteries. That's the zone one placement. It can also be placed below the renal arteries. That's zone three placement. But in this case, they're just doing zone one. So in theory, it can achieve that without all the morbidity that might happen when you cut open the chest, right? So there's a lot of stuff that goes along with that. It's bloody, it's bleedy, and all that kind of stuff. The trouble is the data for its effectiveness have been pretty sparse. We saw some initial reports from single centers, like we're talking a long time ago, right? I mean, we're talking back in the paper chase days, little things of 20 patients and things like that with Reboa that were quite promising. And those were followed by a couple studies out of Japan that were larger that failed to show, in fact, showed like that Reboa was associated with worse outcomes. And then a trial 
from the American College of Surgeons just maybe a couple of years ago that similarly showed that Reboa use was associated with worse clinical outcomes. Because this, I feel like for me, this is something I want to work really badly, you know, because mm -hmm. I can imagine working in a community ED and having a patient who needs like an ED thoracotomy and everyone kind of going, oh, this is not <laughs> good. <laughs> I haven't done one in a long time. If you do one, this is going to be very difficult to transfer the yeah. patient, all this stuff. And then you just like put something, the femoral artery, and that's kind of yeah. like a thoracotomy. In yeah. theory, I love this so much. And, and again, yeah, it's all the benefit with, you know, much less of the blood. Now, to be clear, you don't get all the benefit, right? If you open up the chest, you can't fix a hole in the heart yeah, with a Yeah, you Rebola. can't manually pump the heart. Right. And I get it, but, but you know. But there, as, as far as what the benefit you get from a cross clamp while you're waiting or whatever to go to the OR or whatever else is happening, theoretically, it should be there. Now, so again, no good data. However, None of those trials that we just, I just described, the two from Japan, the one from the United States, were randomized controlled trials. They were just registry studies. So these authors are part of a new consortium of investigators who've established a more detailed registry of patients who have received aortic cross-clamping either by Reboa or ED thoracotomy, and their group is called, actually, AORTA. And there's an acronym for it that I did not write out, but I like that. Hey, thank you guys. I appreciate that very much. And this paper reports on the sample, that full sample of, of uh, that registry. So just for background, the aorta registry consists of data from 28 trauma centers that prospectively collect data on patients that are over 16 that have uh, received aortic occlusion, and that was between the years of 2013 and 2021. And again, the aortic occlusion could have been a thoracotomy or it could have been Reboa. This analysis looks only at patients who had zone one placement. They don't really explain why, but they said, Maybe the zone one, zone three, that that accounts for some of the heterogeneity and the findings of the different studies. So let's just limit it to zone one, see what we get. And they also eliminate patients from centers that did fewer than 10 Reboas and 10 thoracotomy procedures. So they had to be, the notion there is that you're not studying the center, right? If there's a center that only does one thing and another center that only does something else, the difference between the centers may have nothing to do with the Reboa stuff and you're measuring center stuff, not Reboa stuff. So they got rid of that. The key outcome was hospital survival, okay? Secondary outcomes were all the stuff we usually see, ICU length of stay, ventilator-free days, and some complication things. They correctly assumed that there would be huge baseline differences between the group that got Reboa versus EDT and therefore decided to use a propensity score matching strategy to try to develop an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Ultimately, they had 991 subjects that were identified. That's a lot, right? 300 of them underwent a zone one Reboa procedure, and 685 had the traditional ED thoracotomy. Everything about the groups was massively different, massively different. Age was totally different. Gender was totally different. The presence of abdominal injury was totally different. You name it, it was different. The most striking difference was that the median systolic blood pressure for patients undergoing Reboa was 77 on hospital arrival and 53 at the time of the procedure, 77 and 53. And the corresponding values for those who got ED thoracotomy were, let me see here, zero and zero. So maybe just slightly different kinds of patients, these uh, treatment modalities are being applied to. So this will be solved by propensity score matching, right? Well, not really. So despite using what they call a greedy propensity score match, and that's, that's a term that's used. So, you know, hopefully these, the guys will go through a lot of the propensity score matching. But basically, you, you take people and map out the chance that they would get 
Roboa. The probability that they'd get Roboa using a logistic model. And then you find one person who had a similar probability that got Roboa and someone who didn't. And then you can you know, use that cohort to compare outcomes with. In greedy propensity score matching, you allow the closeness, how close that probability is to be pretty wide, right? So it's like you had a 20% chance of getting Roboa and you got Roboa. This guy had a 25% chance of getting Roboa and didn't get Roboa. We're going to match those two people, right? In greedy, you let that maybe go to 25, 30% chance. So you allow a lot of flexibility there as opposed to a less greedy strategy where you make a match really, really tight. Is there a name for that? Like stingy? Uh, you know, I haven't seen it called Stingy. I think there is a name, but it's bl- I'm blanking on it. Hopefully, the fellows will uh, il- uh, the, illuminate the, us. The, the time to talk a little nerdy, fellas. But yes, because that's what their thing is. So despite that strategy, that greedy strategy, they were only able to match 56 people. Well, they were so different that's at right. the onset. Yeah. Know, how are you going to match them? Exactly. So if Some are dead. Yeah. And some are very alive. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And you can, and any propensity score match that does match them, it's kind of phony. You know, it's like, wait a minute, you know, I mean, alive and dead, those are very different concepts. So they were only able to match 50 of the Roboa cases out of the 300 and something. So only whatever that is, like less than 20%, 15%. So you're talking about a really weird slice of this already unusual population. Now, what did they actually find? They found in this propensity matched cohort, the mortality was lower in the Roboa group, 80% versus 93% which roughly translates to a number needed to treat for Roboa versus ED thoracotomy of you know, seven to eight, which is fantastic. But in the secondary endpoints show the same kind of trend. You know, but this is way too good to be true. And it has to do with this methodologic problem. So the authors note many of the limitations and loosely call for an RCT for this paper. But honestly, and I'm, I'm a little disappointed that they do that, but then the last paragraph sort of say, well, you know, an RCT would be hard. In this, you know, this is, it's hard. And, you know, there's other priorities. They literally say, you know, we got other things to deal with, like monkeypox. They literally put that in their, in the, they, they name names. They name names. It was monkey and monkeypox. We can't do a resuscitative thoracotomy trial because we got to worry about monkeypox. I'm like, okay, okay. And so they say, you know, basically a trial would be hard. And that this paper, therefore, should sort of lead the way and be the standard bearer going forward. And, you know, I think I've alluded to it, but I want to walk you through why this is extremely likely to be wrong. So imagine a patient who is severely injured, who comes to the ED with hemorrhage from, you know, abdominal pelvic injury. The systolic blood pressure is 60. Apparently, some trauma surgeons think, like, let's put a Roboa in that guy. You know, pressure is very soft, looks sick, let's do it. So they put the Roboa in, they get blood, they survive their ED stay, they go to the OR where the surgeon does their magic in there and you know, stops all the bleeding and the patient survives. Wonderful. Roboa seems like it was helpful. Now imagine the same patient comes to your ED. Well, you don't know the first thing about placing Roboa, right? So you do what you normally do. You place blood and they survive. They go to the OR and they survive. In this case, it's entirely possible and even likely that Roboa was a waste and possibly could have caused more injuries because it is associated with worsening kidney function, et cetera. But we never know that by this trial because they didn't compare it with people who didn't get Roboa. They compared it only with people who got thoracotomy, right? So, you know, now imagine what kind of patient would actually get a thoracotomy with a blood pressure of 60, right? Like that's wild, right? Like that must be a really sick looking blood pressure of 60 compared to someone else. So, 
the bottom line is that I think is the main issue is it's very likely that it is true that the people who got thoracotomy were much sicker on observable things, but also probably on unobservable things than the people that got Reboa. That's very likely the reason that there's this huge difference in treatment effect or observed treatment effect. Turns out those other trials we looked at that had flipped results, they did it the other way. So the Japanese study in particular, what they did is they said, okay, here's the probability of getting Reboa, right? You have a 20% chance of getting Reboa. And they just compared it to the next guy down who had a 20% probability of getting Reboa, but they didn't mandate that that person get a thoracotomy. They could have just got nothing, right? And in that case, Reboa failed miserably. Now, to be fair, it's very likely if there's two people who have roughly equal probability of getting Reboa, the one that got Reboa may well have looked sicker. They may have been like, no, I think this guy's headed south. Let's put that in. And so that might bias against Reboa, that strategy. So to me, you've just got a situation where one strategy bias is against it, one strategy bias is for it, and it should be a very firm call for like, we need a trial. There's only one solution to this. You know, the point estimates are all crazy. I'm not accusing anyone of intellectual dishonesty or anything like that, but they're all crazy and we need a real trial. And there is one enrolling, this UK Reboa trial that's been enrolling since 2017. I tried to get an update looking at clinicaltrials.gov and seeing what they've been publishing about that lately. And there's just, there's nothing there yet. So I don't know where they're at with data collection. You look like you want to say something. No, just, I don't blame them with the monkeypox. <laughs> All right. The Rebola Wars continue. I would not invest much time and energy into learning this procedure or advocating for its use at this time. Much more must be understood before this can be considered an evidence-based strategy. And we'll see. Maybe this UK trial can help us out. Editor's commentary. This is the latest observational study of Reboa in major trauma centers, which compared Reboa outcomes to those of patients who had ED thoracotomy. The most important finding was that even in centers that frequently perform Reboa, they appear to use this technique in a totally different type of injured person compared with those who get ED thoracotomy. In the smaller, successfully propensity matched group, Reboa mortality was lower than the thoracotomy group, but this does not strongly suggest that Reboa actually causes reduced mortality. It is much more likely that these differences in observed mortality are due to differences in baseline clinical conditions. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. VV116 versus Nermatrelvir Ritonavir for oral treatment of COVID-19 by Cow et al. from the always illustrious New England Journal of Medicine. Stay classy, New England Journal of Medicine. So currently, Paxlovid, right? That's this Nermatrelvir Ritonavir, a lot easier to say, Paxlovid, is recommended by the World Health Organization for treating mild to moderate COVID-19. However, access is limited and there are lots of drug-drug interactions between Paxlovid and other things that require a comprehensive med reconciliation before you're even allowed to prescribe this thing. Remdesivir is an alternative, but it requires IV infusions, which then limits sort of practical application of the medication. In response to this problem, there have been several oral analogs developed of remdesivir, including this VV116. This paper is a phase three non-inferiority trial conducted during the Omicron phase of the pandemic, comparing a five-day course of either Paxlovid 
or VV116, among symptomatic adults with COVID-19 at high risk for progression to more serious disease. The primary efficacy endpoint was time from randomization to sustained clinical recovery through day 28. And sustained clinical recovery basically meant alleviation of all COVID-19 related symptoms, so you were better. And they used this score system, which is used pretty commonly to look at symptoms in COVID, which basically has 11 categories. Each one, you can get a 0, 1, 2, or 3. So you end up with a score of somewhere between 0 and 33, where higher scores indicate more symptoms. And they wanted you to have a score of basically 0 or 1 on the whole thing for two consecutive days. That was sustained recovery. They then present data on 771 patients who received a study medication. About 75% of the patients enrolled here were vaccinated. Over 90% had mild baseline symptoms, and about a third were age over 60. A third were obese, and a third had hypertension or cardiovascular disease. VV116 was found to be non-inferior to Paxlovid, with a median time to sustain recovery of four days versus five days. And again, kind of similar to what we see when they look at, you know, these influenza trials and stuff is four days versus five days, but the true difference was like, you know, less than 24 hours. It was an hours of difference. Median difference is four days, but that's right. Average is 4.22. They give a lot of data and they do present Kaplan-Meier curves for the primary outcome for all patients for the per-protocol analysis and for patients who started the regimen within five days of symptom onset as a sensitivity check, you know, like, well, maybe if you get it early, it works. If you get it late, it doesn't do anything. And basically, all the curves look very similar to each other. But the percentage of participants with sustained clinical recovery was actually slightly higher in the VV116 group at each of the pre-specified time points, all the way up to 21 days, but just a little. So the curves kind of diverged and stayed a little bit diverged, but it wasn't all that significant. No patient in either arm died or progressed to severe disease. The median time to first negative test was also the same across groups at about a week. Overall adverse events were lower in the VV116 arm, 67% versus 77%, as were serious adverse events, 2.6% versus 5.7%. So The trial was, it was not a blinded trial, nor was it a double dummy trial with placebo pills or something like that. And they kind of go into that. They're like a supply chain issue. We couldn't get the placebo pills. We wanted to do it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Monkey box. (laughs) So bing bong match. (laughs) Nice Saturday Night Live reference there. So old school. (laughs) And the population enrolled here was very homogeneous. It was all Chinese adults. The study was done in China. So I think they, in my mind, have shown pretty clearly that VV116 works just as well as Paxlovid. But the issue is the lack of a placebo arm, which is incredibly important because it doesn't answer the question of if either one of these two has real value in a vaccinated patient with mild symptoms at the onset, right? Because today's COVID 
is very different the than the COVID year. grandpa's COVID year. It is. No, it's you know, Well, so, I have the next paper, which goes into the same thing. So. Right. And I don't want to let too much, you know, count out of the but bag you're right. here. you're right. You're 100%. But that right. is the problem, is with no placebo group. Okay, both these two work fine. How do we know they work better than nothing at with all? water, yeah. You know, like, which is what we always run into with this influenza stuff. And so, these guys are no dummies, and it's not because of monkeypox that they didn't put a placebo group in there. <laughs> yeah. Well they're, they're, well, they're saying, well, it's unethical. You know, it's unethical at this uh, point to give these high-risk people nothing. Yeah. So it's a really well-done paper. I think it's, you know, it is showing us that there's alternatives coming to Paxlovid that might be easier to prescribe and easier for us to give out. But whether or not they have real value in this vaccinated patient population is, uh, I think, an open question. Editor's commentary. In this randomized trial from China, the authors found that an oral version of remdesivir called VV116 was non-inferior to Paxlovid in terms of efficacy among adults with symptomatic COVID-19 and suggests it may also come with a lower adverse event rate. It certainly would be easier to give it, considering all the drug-drug interactions with Paxlovid. However, the lack of a placebo group coupled with the fact that no one got sick in the study period weakens any potential conclusions. If either of these have value among vaccinated adults in the current COVID-19 phase of the pandemic, in my mind, is still an open question. Abstract number four, nirmatrelvir plus ritinavir for early COVID-19 in a large U.S. healthcare system, a population-based cohort study. This is by Dryden Peterson et al. in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And we're going to try to answer that question that you just asked in the last abstract. And if you didn't listen to it, then you should go back and listen to it. So COVID's now entered this endemic phase, and the severity of illness has dramatically tapered due to widespread vaccination, population exposure to various COVID strains, and decreased apparent virulence of the more modern strains of the virus. We all know this. This is not controversial. When was the last time you gave a COVID patient steroids? Oof. It's, Isn't that crazy to you think? Know, I'll say I had a really sick COVID. My first very sick COVID patient in a long time, about really? a few weeks ago, got intubated, which I haven't seen for a really long They got steroids. Other than that, yeah, I'm like scratching. I haven't had one. I swear it's been a year. But, you know, I'm sure there obviously are some cases out there. Anyway, but what about other treatments, specifically the antiviral combination nirmatrelvir plus ritinavir, commonly known as Paxlovid? It's indicated for people at higher risk for clinical decompensation. And just for the record, last night, I was watching the Grammys. Do you watch the Grammys? I did not watch Grammys the Grammys. Grammys' best show. And I love the Grammys, right? It's so cool. There's like, you know, you see everybody. They're all dressed crazy and stuff like that. Super fun. Anyways, watching the Grammys. And no less than four times did I see an ad in which Pink, Michael Phelps, and that dude, Kamal Bell, the guy who does United Shades of America, and some other actress who is an older actress, I can't remember, were basically hawking Paxlovid. They didn't name it, but they're like, hey, have a plan when you get COVID. And it was, you know, sponsored by Pfizer, et cetera. So, you know, people are still advocating for it. You said in the last paper, the WHO firmly recommends it for people with symptomatic COVID who are at risk. And at risk in this context is anybody who's overweight, over 50, all these things. It's a lot, a lot of people. But decompensation is so rare in today's COVID context. Does this drug actually matter anymore? And for the record, I think I've prescribed it less than 10 times in my life. I don't know if you've ever prescribed or often have prescribed Paxlovid. So 
These authors look at observational data from Mass General Brigham's large nonprofit integrated health system during the Omicron wave of the COVID pandemic. The part they looked at was from January to July of 2022. They included patients if they were diagnosed with COVID, were over 50 years of age, and were not hospitalized within one day of the initial prescription. There's some technical reasons why they did that's a good idea. Patients who received other COVID-specific treatments, such as monoclonal antibodies, were also excluded. So patients prescribed Paxlovid were likely to differ from similarly aged patients who did not, so the authors control for this via a probability-weighted design which is really just a multivariate adjustment using important variables such as like whether they were immunocompromised, whether they're vaccinated, etc. The key part of their strategy is that it doesn't just yield odds ratios or hazard ratios, but actually gives a relative risk. So the statistical plan that they did allows for that. The key outcome was a composite outcome that included hospitalization within 14 days or death within 28 days. Overall, they identified 44,000 patients who met entry criteria. 12,000 of them were prescribed Paxlovid, and 32,000 were not prescribed Paxlovid. And remember, each of these had a Paxlovid indication. They were old enough or had some, some clinical context that indicated Paxlovid. The groups were substantially different at baseline, with the Paxlovid group being older and at higher risk for complication than the no treatment group by a little bit. What did they find? 0.55%, 0.55% of the Paxlovid group experienced a primary outcome compared with 0.9-something percent of the treatment group. So both groups had a less than 1% risk of hospitalization or death. Just the Paxlovid group had about 60% the risk of the no Paxlovid group. The result is statistically significant, but the clinical significance must be thought about and brought into context, right? The absolute difference between the two groups is 0.4%, 0.4%, which yields a number needed to treat of 250. So 250 people must be treated to prevent one primary outcome. That might be okay if the primary outcome was death, but as you, I'm sure, can intuit, it was not. This whole thing was driven by hospitalizations. There actually was a difference in the death rate between the two groups, but the baseline death rate was way less than 0.1%. So you'd have to treat many thousands of people to get this. And it's not free. It's not free from a side effect profile, which you outlined in the previous paper. They don't really go into side effects too much in this paper because it's, you know, it's not clinical data. It's, a, you know, the sort of administrative style data. But you said, that severe complications happen two to five percent, depending on which. Not you know, no one's dying, but you know, having significant adverse reactions. There's a lot of drug-drug interfaces. So, with a number needed to treat of at least two fifty, this seems like something that might not be useful. The other cost, of course, is the actual monetary cost, and the average cost for a prescription for Paxlovid is five hundred dollars. Now, it's true that the government pays for it, which last I checked is just us. I mean, we just all pay for it. You know, it's not like it still costs 500 bucks. People are like, it's free. I'm like, uh, no, that's not. It's definitely not free. Just no more free than stuff that insurance companies pay for, right? Yeah, it's not out of pocket, but somebody has to pay for it. And so you do the crude math, 500 times 250, that's $125,000 to prevent one hospitalization. There's just no way that that's even remotely reasonable thing to do. So, you know, that's it. 
the results then basically held for all their subgroups. And for each subgroup, there was a reduction in that same order of magnitude of about 0.2 to 0.7%, you know, depending on exactly which subgroup. But there was one notable exception, to be fair, I should highlight, and that's in the group that was either un or really under-vaccinated. The treatment effect size there was different. It was 2%. So there, there was a much higher risk of you know, developing hospitalizations and such. And so that translates to a number needed to treat 50, which is still a very big number, but that's more like getting into the range of something that might be you know, a useful thing to do. Overall, I think providers will see what they want in this data. The authors seem actually quite favorable to the treatment. They're like, yeah, this is great. You know, Personally, the results, as I've already implied, are very underwhelming to me. It's a lot of people to treat at a lot of cost to prevent the hospitalization, which you know, just doesn't seem like it's worth it to me. This is also should be taken in the context of this is at the beginning of the Omicron variant. And now we've had you know, the whole world got Omicron. I mean, like, a, I don't know, you know, they estimate huge fraction. So that gives the population even more sort of baseline resistance to subsequent variants of COVID, et cetera. So my guess is that if you repeated this study, and I'm sure they will in a year, we'll see that this number needed to treat is even bigger. So for me, this is not compelling data that it needs to be used. Some people will see it as, see, it, it made a difference, but I think the cost just, and the potential benefit just don't justify using this routinely for patients with higher risk for COVID problems. Editor's commentary. This is interesting population-based evidence showing that the antiviral combination Paxlovid is slightly effective at preventing hospitalization for patients with COVID during the Omicron phase of the pandemic. The number needed to treat is approximately 250 to prevent a hospitalization which is so large as to significantly reduce enthusiasm for this medication. The cost of Paxlovid is actually about $500 per treatment course, which results in $125,000 to prevent one admission. That seems excessive to me. Abstract number five. Validating the Brain Injury Guidelines Results of an American Association for the Surgery of Trauma Prospective Multi-Institutional Trial. This is by Joseph et al., from the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. And truthfully, this is a pretty cool one. Like this sort of rule set that they're going over had slipped under my radar for some reason, go through some of the history of what's been going on with it. So traumatic brain injury is associated with high morbidity and mortality. And because of this, the finding of a bleed on CT usually triggers a cascade of utilization of very expensive resources, including multiple imaging studies, an ICU admission, a neurosurgical consultation, and often a transfer if none of these things are locally available. However, the trend in management of these bleeds is actually towards non-operative care. And as scanners get better and better and more and more advanced, we're finding tiny, tiny bleeds that might have just simply been missed on older scanners, and that is becoming a lot more common. And so the authors are basically saying, are all traumatic bleeds the same? Should they be treated the same, or are they, in fact, very different? So to answer this question, some groups have developed something called the Brain Injury Guidelines, the BIG. And these were developed based on a retrospective study of nearly 4,000 TBI patients. And the BIG divides patients into three categories to estimate the risk of deterioration, and the need for innervation based on variables including things like loss of consciousness, 
neurologic exam, intoxication, the type and size of bleed, where a big one is the least severe category and a big three is the most severe category. And big one, just so you understand it, I'd never heard of this categorization strategy before, is basically a patient that is not intoxicated with a normal neurologic exam and no skull fracture, not taking anticoagulants with a less than four millimeter bleed of any type, excluding intraventricular hemorrhage. Per the big, these patients could be observed in the ED for six hours, watched for some neurologic change, and then discharged with no consult and no repeat scan. Big two patients can be intoxicated and have loss of consciousness with bleeds five to seven millimeters. And the big in these cases would recommend 24 hours of observation prior to a potential discharge. Now, the big has been successfully validated once by a single center, but this is the first large prospective external validation effort from multiple trauma centers. They enrolled patients over age 16 with a traumatic brain injury on their initial head CT between 2018 and 2020. The primary outcome measure was requirement of neurosurgical intervention. The secondary outcome measures were neurologic exam worsening, progression of the bleed on a repeat CT, need for post-discharge ED visits, and 30-day readmissions. After some exclusions from missing variables, they present data on just over 2,000 patients. Of these, 14.8%, about 15%, were categorized into big one. Similarly, 15% into big two, and 70% were in the big three category. In the big one group, no patient worsened clinically. Four out of 301 patients, or just over 1%, had a progression of the bleed on CT, but no change in management, and none of them required neurosurgical intervention. Of those who were categorized into the big two group, Two out of 295 patients, 0.7%, worsened clinically, and 7% had a progression of the bleed on CT, but none required neurosurgical intervention. There were no TBI-related post-discharge ED visits or 30-day readmissions in the big one and big two patients. All patients who required neurosurgical intervention were in the big three group, and that was about 20% of them. So 20% in that highest severity category. Now, this wasn't a trial, right? All these patients still got admitted and watched. They didn't actually follow their protocol, but they ended up saying if they had, the authors suggest that they could have saved 425 repeat scans, 400 prolonged hospitalizations, and 500 neurosurgical consultations if they had. Generally speaking, this is a pretty big study and Sometimes these journal of trauma and acute care surgery, we have some issues with the methods and things like that. The methods were well described in this one, really well. But some notable limitations are that there's no long-term follow-up. There's no description of other things that might have happened during admission or indications for admission. You know, maybe this bleed wasn't the only thing. They're like, oh, everybody in big one could have been discharged. Oh, maybe they had six other reasons to be admitted. We don't really know. They had 400 cases with incomplete data all of the enrolling sites were trauma centers with access to neurosurgery. So it's good to know about this thing. And I like that surgeons are developing it. But before it can be used, it definitely needs a wider validation, including some community hospitals, because those are the ones that are really going to feel the impact. You know, the ones who 
might have to like all of a sudden start to, you know, part the seas and stuff like that to get these patients transferred to a neurosurgical center. If we don't have to do that anymore, then this paper has like a lot of impact. But for now, I think it's thought provoking. I like the direction they're heading in. And let's just wait for some of these larger external validation Yeah, studies. I agree with you. I mean, my guess is this is right. That's my guess that, you know, three millimeter bleed in your head and you're otherwise fine. You just, and it's isolated, you know, again, with all those caveats and you have to have all the other things too. You have to have a caregiver that's going to be able to watch you and all that kind of stuff and come back if you start puking and all that kind of stuff. But my guess is that this is the right thing to do is that those patients should go home. They'll be better off being admitted to the hospital where nothing happens on a ward for a day. It's no fun. It's a waste of time, energy, money, all that kind of stuff. You're way better. I way prefer that someone do a telehealth visit six hours later, like a, a neurosurgeon at your house. But I agree with you also that like we're a ways away from being able to implement this. That may be closer than we were before. Yep. Editor's commentary. This is a multi-site validation study of the brain injury guidelines. And the authors found that following the big management strategy would have reduced resource utilization safely as no patients in the big one or big two categories needed a surgical intervention. Definitely more external validation is needed before you can use the big at bedside. But if proven to have value across a larger sample, this could have a massive impact on ED practice as it challenges the dogma that all traumatic bleeds need to be admitted or transferred for a neurosurgical evaluation and monitoring. An individualized patient-level approach certainly makes a lot of sense to me. Abstract number six, outcome of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation use in severe accidental hypothermia with cardiac arrest and circulatory instability, a multi-santra prospective observational study in Japan, and this is by Takauji, I believe in Resuscitation, Sanjay's favorite journal. So we recently covered a study from Hennepin looking at the utility of ECMO for patients with severe hypothermia, and the results were generally in favor of ECMO for rewarming. That study only had 28 patients with severe hypothermia and cardiac arrest, almost all of whom got rewarming by ECMO, so it made it difficult or impossible to compare outcomes with a group that was in cardiac arrest who might have gotten rewarmed with other more conventional techniques like lavage of the nasogastric area, bladder, or chest. These authors organized the intensive care with extracorporeal membrane oxygenation rewarming in accidentally severe hypothermia study. Ikari. Ice crash. Nice. Ice crash. Nicely done. Nicely done. And guys. like it works, dude. It were intensive care, extracorporeal. It. it works. And you know, so kudos to you guys. And these are Japanese doctors, English Pai in their first language, and they nailed it. They crushed it. They stuck the landing. And instead, normally we're reading these things where it's like, you know, it has no words, no letters that overlap. So I mean, these guys, if nobody's gonna follow their ECMO guidelines and stuff like that, they should at least consult this author group for acronym creation. So anyway, this is a prospective multi-center study of 36 Japanese EDs enrolling adult patients with body temperature less than 32 who had accidental hypothermia, which I don't quite understand. I don't know what non-accidental hypothermia is, but whatever. Accidental hypothermia, including only patients 
with cardiac arrest or circulatory instability. The goal of the investigation was to examine the mortality difference between patients with circulatory instability due to this hypothermia who were treated with ECMO versus, you know, other techniques. They then further subdivided the cohort into those who had frank cardiac arrest, so, you know, CPR in progress, and those who had this otherwise just circulatory instability, which they defined as a blood pressure less than 60 or a heart rate less than 50 on arrival. Again, primary outcome was mortality and secondary outcomes were the things like ICU free days and stuff like that. Over the three-year study period from 2019 to 2022, so it's a very modern study, they identified 242 people, so a really large number, who met inclusion criteria. 41 were treated with ECMO and 201 were treated with conventional therapy. Mean age was actually over 80. Yeah, they were old. In every group, it was over 80 years old. So that's something to consider. Mean body temperature was 26 degrees Celsius. Rewarming happened a lot faster in the ECMO group, about five and a half degrees centigrade per hour. So you go from 26 in two hours, you're back to normal thermia. Compared with 1.3 degrees centigrade per hour in the conventional thing, which would therefore take you, you know, five or six hours to get fully rewarmed. So in the non-cardiac arrest group, outcomes were pretty similar between those treated with and without ECMO. The overall survival was the same between the ECMO and the non-ECMO group. The survival was right at 60% for each group. However, ECMO was associated with higher survival in those with cardiac arrest. There were 57 people in cardiac arrest in this cohort. 24 of them received ECMO and 33 received the other more conventional techniques. 28-day survival was 58% in the ECMO group versus 21% in the non-ECMO group. Secondary outcomes followed a similar pattern. A major improvement among those who got ECMO and who were in cardiac arrest, but not an improvement in all the secondary outcomes for those patients that got ECMO, but were not in cardiac arrest. So this is now the second study showing an association between ECMO and favorable outcomes in patients with hypothermic cardiac arrest. This is not a trial, and selection bias likely has a role to play in this equation. You know, we're still trying to figure out why would some patients get ECMO when they're in cardiac arrest and others not. It's probable that if you had the option to put them on ECMO and you elected not to, you thought the patient was pretty moribund, you know, and you're like, oh, we're just not going to do this. That's not worth it. So only an RCT will really eliminate that potential bias. But as you can see, these events are very rare across a whole country. Over several years, you only get to like, you know, 40 or 50 cases. So for me, this is likely to be the type of evidence, this sort of prospective registry evidence that we're going to have to rely on for quite a while with this very, very rare event. And so in that context, I think this is reasonable evidence that ECMO should be used for hypothermic patients in cardiac arrest if you have the ability to hook someone up to ECMO. It's a totally different question about if you don't have an ECMO program and is this data so strong that these patients absolutely must be transferred to an ECMO center or you have to develop your own ECMO protocol. That I'm not anywhere near close to agreeing. But if you have it, this seems to be about as good an indication for ECMO as we have currently in the house of medicine. Editor's commentary. For patients with hypothermic cardiac arrest, resuscitation with ECMO is associated with markedly improved mortality compared with conventional rewarming. 
There is likely some degree of selection bias driving this finding, but the data is somewhat compelling. If you're at an institution with an ECMO program, I would strongly consider using it for this indication. Abstract number seven. Bullous skin signs and laboratory surgical indicators can quickly and effectively differentiate necrotizing fasciitis from cellulitis. This is by Sai et al. from the International Journal of Infectious Diseases, the official publication of the International Society for Infectious Diseases. Early recognition of neck fasci and providing emergent surgical debridement and appropriate antibiotic therapy can decrease the mortality rate, but differentiating neck fasci from really bad cellulitis can be difficult, as skin changes, amounts of pain can actually be kind of similar between the two. The laboratory risk indicator for necrotizing fasciitis scale, the Lorenic, is one existing risk stratification tool that uses white blood cell count, CRP, hemoglobin, glucose, sodium, and creatinine values to generate a score that is supposed to correlate with the risk of neck fasci. It's worth noting that although the initial validation work with this score looked very promising, most external validations have shown the score to perform very poorly to the point that you don't see this a lot. So in this study, The authors aim to investigate the different microorganisms associated with mortality to evaluate the bullous skin sign and to identify positive predictive factors for differentiating neck fasci from cellulitis on initial presentation to the emergency department. It's a prospective cohort study from China of 80 patients with neck fasci or cellulitis somewhere on an extremity. They identified 182 patients with neck fasci, for which the gold standard was surgical pathology, and almost 2,000 patients with cellulitis. But to be in the final study cohort, you needed to have an organism because they were also associated and they were interested in looking at this like, you know, which organisms make you the sickest. So that excluded a lot of these cellulitis people, leaving 145 patients with neck fasci and 159 with cellulitis out of that original 2,000. Most cases were monomicrobial. 126 out of 145 of the neck fasci cases and 137 out of 159 of the cellulitis cases, so almost all of both groups, were Vibrio species as the most common identified organism. Oh yeah, Vibrio cellulitis, really, really. But I mean, I guess if you're on the margin between neck fasci and cellulitis. Maybe it's, a ba- maybe that, it's an odd organism. Right, so that, I thought about it and right. kind of came to the same conclusion. Right. I don't need help telling me that like simple cellulitis isn't yeah. neck fasci. Okay. The mortality rate was 10% in the neck fasci group compared with 1% in the cellulitis group. And again, this probably is really bad cellulitis, although they don't give a lot of clinical indicators. Age, sex, fever, underlying chronic illnesses did not differ significantly between the two groups. Hemorrhagic bulla were seen in 96 out of 145 neck fasci patients and in 7 out of 159 cellulitis patients. They then ran a multivariable regression, and in that, five variables were identified for differentiating the two, neck fasci from cellulitis. Bulla. Nailed it already. Go ahead. Yeah. Hemorrhagic bulla, white blood cell count greater than 11,000, bands, any bands, CRP greater than 100, 
a systolic blood pressure less than 90. And the authors kind of suggest, they're like, if you have two of these, that's basically diagnostic for neck fascia. <laughs> that's kind of what they say. So, you know, the study has some strengths, right? It's a prospective design. And one thing that was kind of cool about it was they took pictures of every case and they put a lot of pictures in the paper of every, so they could look for the bulla and have somebody else kind of, you know, look at that kind of thing. But weaknesses include a lack of adequate description of the details of the procedure and the methods, no discussion at all of what was done with conflicting data points or disagreement between research assistants, and the cellulitis group being limited to those that grew something in a culture. So it wasn't just had to be sent, it had to actually grow something. So it's not like you can really use this as a control for all patients with cellulitis. It's a very specific group of patients with cellulitis. And there was no attempt to match the patients, you know, in the two groups. They just didn't really do that at all. And likely they overfit their model in this regression model. So there's a lot to be, you know, at the end of the day, they're kind of going, if you are hypotensive with your labs all completely out of whack, that's probably more likely to be neck fash than cellulitis. With that point, I agree. Right. The issue, though, that like if you had a white blood cell count of 13,000 and a CRP of 200, which I feel like I see on like. 80% 80% of uh, cellulitis cases, that's neck fashion. No, come on. Yeah, but I, you know, for me, I'm just focused on the bulla. You know, yeah. and I, I get that. And I think maybe it's nice to see some numbers there that yeah. if you have hemorrhagic bulla, worry. Just pay attention. You know, like, agree to that. If the patient's hypotensive and has bulla, they better be getting a surgery consult. And now I'm going to just throw in a little teaser for, I actually have two neck fash papers this month for one that comes a later, I think it's paper 15, which now if you're kind of suspicious, what are you supposed to do? Do you call the surgeon or do you light that thing up and get a CT? And I'm just going to pause, skip ahead to number 15 if you really want to know, or just listen to the next abstract. Editor's commentary. In this prospective effort from China, the authors propose a new scoring system to differentiate necrotizing fasciitis from cellulitis, which basically says if you have bulla, your labs look terrible and you're hypotensive, this is more likely to be neck fash. Although I would agree these are all bad signs, I have some concerns about the methods, their controls, and the statistical model that make me skeptical about the value of their proposed score. I would wait for external validation before getting excited about this one, but it's a nice reminder that hemorrhagic bullae are very concerning and the lorinic score is not a good alternative. Abstract number eight, comparison of non-operative versus operative management in pediatric Castillo-Anderson type 1 open tibia fractures. This is by Paget et al., and it's in the journal Injury. So open fractures are orthopedic emergencies due to the high risk of infection, the high risk of compartment syndrome, and the risk of non-union. Or so we thought. The Castillo-Anderson system classifies open fractures. This is very controversial. There's other classification systems, but this is the dominant one, Castillo Anderson. So note it. It's a really simple classification system, actually. There's only three categories. The first one is a laceration less than one centimeter without a lot of crushed tissue. So this is a pretty simple lack. Bone like poked through real quick, didn't tear up a lot of things. The bone's not sticking out. You can easily cover it back up with soft tissue. Type two wounds are one to 10 centimeters with moderate tissue damage. And type 3 are the ones that are really, you know, horrific. Traditionally, even type 1 fractures are given IV antibiotics and taken to the OR for a washout and debridement and an ORIF as necessary. Even if they don't need an ORIF, though, right? They go for the washout and debridement. 
Some recent studies have suggested that type 1 fractures may be effectively managed without that operative intervention. They do a bedside washout, put them on some antibiotics, and move along. But these studies have largely been done in upper extremities and usually in adults. Lower extremity, in particular tibia injuries, may be at higher risk, so it's less certain that a non-operative strategy is even remotely acceptable. So these authors conducted a retrospective study from a single institution examining the rate of non-union infection or refracture among children with grade 1, so that classification scheme, grade 1 open tibia fractures treated with and without operative intervention. There were basically zero chart review methods. It's really just like they just say, we looked at the charts and these are the outcomes. Over a 21-year study period, want to hazard a guess how many patients they had that had open grade one tibia fractures? 21-year study period. 20. You're in the right ballpark. It's 33. All right. 33. So this is, it took a while to get to this number. 21 of them were managed operatively and 12 were managed non-operatively. Mean age was nine. Those managed operatively clearly had more extensive injuries than those managed non-operatively. They were more likely to be car accidents as opposed to a sports injury, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of the patients essentially got IV antibiotics for some duration of treatment. We don't know what. The punchline. The infection rate was 14% in the operative group and 0% in the non-operative group. Non-union occurred in 9% of the operative group and 8% of the non-operative group. So somewhat comparable. Now, that's it. I'm not going to go into any more details about this paper. And and I don't want to make too much of the study. It's a single-center retrospective study with a really narrow slice of orthopedic injuries without methods. I mean, obviously, it's, you know, you can't do anything, turn, change your practice on the basis of it. But I do think it's interesting that we're seeing this slow movement challenging some of these orthopedic dogmas about the absolute need to go to the OR for a washout and debridement for these types of injuries. And, you know, for some of these small open fractures, also for, you know, what we've talked about last year a bunch of times was the traumatic arthrotomies. So when the knee joint itself is involved and we're starting to see that maybe just wash it out at the bedside and put them on some antibiotics is sufficient. I'm in no way advocating that as an emergency physician, you take it upon yourself to determine if an open fracture belongs in the OR or not. All of these patients, with the exception of like maybe an open distal phalanx fracture, should be evaluated by orthopedics. But be aware of this sort of subtle change when advocating for your patients and potentially understanding some of the recommendations that your orthopedic consultants are making. Editor's Commentary This is a relatively small, single-center, retrospective study with weak chart review methods. It shows a very low rate of infection in non-union for class 1 open tibia fractures in kids who were managed without operative intervention compared to those who went to the OR. The data is extremely preliminary and should not change your general approach to obtaining orthopedic consultation for open fractures, but it can serve to highlight that there's a growing body of evidence that the operative approach may not always be necessary. Abstract number nine, clinical characteristics and illness course based on pathogen among children with respiratory illnesses presenting to an ED. This is by Windsor et al. from the Journal of Medical Virology. Upper respiratory infections are the most common reason for presentation to a pediatric emergency department, and it used to be that we would basically just send them home 
recommendations for supportive care. And if patient asked, uh, you know, what their kid was sick with, we'd say a virus, probably. And if they asked, how long are they going to be sick? We'd say, I don't know. So, so we would say, some doctors would say, oh, two days, and they would be lying. And, and others, others would say, like, two, two months, and yeah. they would be lying. But after COVID-19, obtaining a viral respiratory panel has basically become the norm. So instead of just letting parents know the child has a virus, oftentimes we can tell them exactly which virus they have. And in this study, the authors are just asking if knowing the exact causative organism can also give us a clue on anticipated course of illness and severity. You know, as you say this, because I had a paper like this a couple months ago, and I find it very interesting, you know, because I really believe, and I'm trying to think back to medical school, right? When we got into that virology section and we were talking about upper respiratory infections, I don't even think like we must have labeled them like rhinoviruses, you know, and stuff like that. But I don't think there was any discussion at all about the clinical course of the different things, probably because we, we never know. knew. That, so I like that's exactly right. School, yeah. So yeah, it's a great idea yeah. what they're doing here. And the study is a post hoc analysis of patients enrolled in the RAPID trial, which is the randomized controlled trial assessing point-of-care influenza and other respiratory virus diagnostics, which was conducted in the ED at a children's hospital in Colorado, where kids with acute respiratory symptoms who provided consent basically received a multiplex PCR, the BioFire diagnostics one that a lot of EDs are using, from nasopharyngeal swabs. They also collected clinical characteristics for about two weeks after the ED visit. So among 931 children, that's what they had in the sample, 702, 75% were aged 0 to 5 years, about half were Hispanic, and about 85% tested positive for a respiratory pathogen, and multiple pathogens were detected in about a quarter of the sample. It's remarkable how similar these numbers are to some of the other ones that we've talked about. It's always just about 80% test positive, and then about 20% of them are negative, and there's like, yeah, some quarter of them will have multiple things. Really interesting. Very consistent across like location, Norway, across yeah, yeah, Norway, all these different places. So to kind of cut to the chase on this one, children with RSV, human metanumovirus, and human rhinovirus, enterovirus, had higher hospitalization risk compared with influenza after adjusting for relative confounders with adjusted risk ratios of 2.95, 3.56, that's the human metanumovirus, and 2.85, respectively. Children with RSV, parainfluenza virus, and human metanumovirus, and atypical bacterial pathogens, which are identified in some of the kids, had higher illness severity and duration compared with other respiratory pathogens. Kids with multiple pathogens did not have increased illness severity compared with those with a single pathogen detected. So this is relatively straightforward findings, I think, with the main limitation being the potential for recall bias, right? That, you know, I don't you know how well do they actually look at these symptoms and duration of symptoms and stuff like that. But it is interesting just conceptually to think about the fact that for me, the one that keeps popping up, which I don't feel like I ever paid any attention to before was human medical. Of course virus. it is. That thing you pops know? up and those are the kids that always look sick. Those are the ones <laughs> and you know Having been victim 
Oh, yeah. Human you, metanumovirus yeah, this, this, myself. A year ago, this was like human metanumovirus yeah. capital of uh, Southern California. Yeah, I know. Exactly. We went to uh, visit Amanda's family. Yeah. We came back with human metanumovirus <laughs> in addition to not being- zero. In addition to not sleeping very well <laughs> and being tired from other reasons, we came back with human met- and it wrecked this family. <laughs> I mean, literally, the kids were sick for like close to a month. Yeah. Both of them, you know, and me and Amanda were sick and we're February. It was- such a disaster. And, you know, we, because, you know, we had to get COVID tested because we're so sick and stuff like that, both had human metanumovirus. And I'm like, man, this thing is intense, <laughs> this human. Met- so it's good to see that they found yeah. the exact same thing in this paper. And I think just the whole idea that now we can go, oh, you have this virus. The course may look something like this is so cool. I think that as we get more papers, we'll right. really be able to hone down exactly which ones are the worstiest and which ones are the best well, that's, to that, have. That's very similar to the paper I had. And I, and I haven't, these two papers really haven't shed enormous light on that. But I do think as we get many thousands of cases, we're going to start to see this is the expected trajectory. Just like when someone comes in with cystitis, you're like, okay, you're going to take two doses of antibiotics, you're going to be better. Just finish off the three courses and then you're good versus pilo. You have to, you know, in severe pilo and all these things, you have to alter your treatment expectations. This will be really helpful for parents as they're trying, you know, especially parents who are trying to figure out when is my kid going to be good enough to go to school so that I can go to work or what do I need to do? That's all hopefully coming, you know, like exactly what you said, just setting expectations, preventing ED revisits or primary care. Oh, they had human metanuma. Expect them to be sick for a couple of weeks. We should give you a multi-day off pass and not one day because you're going to need it in three days in all likelihood. Yeah. You know, so yeah, that's, it's really good stuff. We're not quite there, but that's useful to know about the human metanuma virus. What was the other one that was really bad? RSV and parainfluenza. Editor's commentary. In this post hoc analysis of a study with almost a thousand pediatric patients with an acute URI received a multiplex PCR, so we knew exactly what organism was causing their illness, it was observed that kids with RSV and human metanumovirus, among a few others, had the highest chance of being hospitalized and of having a longer course of illness. In an era where viral PCR testing has become commonplace, I think this information can be useful in guiding patients and setting expectations about the course of their disease and the potential duration of illness. Quick take. Abstract number 10, and this is a quick take. It's coronary artery disease among patients admitted with atrial fibrillation and chest pain. This is by Perlstein et al., and it's in a journal called Coronary Artery Disease that I'm quite certain I have not read previously. And I'm suspicious that I might not read in the future. Anyway, so the idea here is pretty good. We get lots of patients with AFib and chest pain during the AFib event. Since risk factors for AFib and coronary disease are overlapping, the question gets, it becomes, you know, should we be more concerned for patients who have AFib with chest pain? Are they experiencing like a stress test, right? Because the rapid response is causing them their obstructive coronary lesions, they can't handle it. And so patients with AFib and chest pain, do they have a high incidence of needing to go to the cath lab or, you know, to get stented and whatnot? So this is a single site retrospective study out of Israel of 57 consecutive patients who had chest pain during an AFib event and were admitted, right? And were admitted. Each got a big workup. 
the goal of the investigation was to determine factors that were associated with an increased risk of obstructive coronary disease defined as, you know, a greater than 50% stenosis on a CT or a conventional angio. The mean age was 71. Overall, in this cohort of AFib patients who were admitted, overall, the risk of coronary artery disease was high. It was about 42%. 24 of the 57 had that. However, there were very few clinical indicators that helped differentiate between those with and without severe obstructive coronary disease. For example, about 60% of the cohort had typical sounding chest pain, but that was 54% of those with AFib and coronary disease had typical chest pain, and 60% of those with AFib but without coronary disease had, had typical chest pain. So it doesn't differentiate. Overall, 37% of the cohort had ST segment changes. And that was a little different between the two groups. 50% of those with AFib and coronary disease had those changes, but 27% of those with AFib who didn't have coronary diseases also had ST segment changes. The only things that were statistically correlated with an increased probability of obstructive coronary disease were, and you're going to want to write this down, elevated troponins and regional wall motion abnormalities on echo. So, you know, stuff that's like not in any way surprising or particularly insightful. Hard evidence of an MI. Yeah, exactly. So as I said, the underlying clinical question is good. Should I be worried or more worried about patients who had a, you know, some sort of supraventricular dysrhythmia and chest pain, which is now controlled, and you otherwise might be stable for, for discharge, but you should be worried about them because they had chest pain during the event compared to someone else. But the methods here just don't help us because the cohort only includes patients who were admitted, suggesting that somebody thought this is worrisome. And we have no idea how many people with AFib were discharged and what their outcomes were. And so this paper just doesn't really help us. Add to that, the chart review methods were non-existent. And, you know, I'm having a really hard time pulling something useful out of it. I guess the one thing that I would say was sort of notable was this idea that there was relative lack of specificity about the ST segment changes. So that was only about 70% specific for obstructive coronary disease. And maybe I would have thought that that was a little bit more specific than that, but that's the only thing. Let's not belabor this paper. It's not good. Editor's commentary. This is a relatively poor retrospective analysis of patients with AFib and chest pain admitted to the hospital. No clinical characteristics were particularly useful in differentiating those patients with and without significant obstructive coronary disease. Quick take. Abstract number 11. Improving duration of antibiotics for skin and soft tissue infections in pediatric urgent cares. And this is by Hamner et al. from Pediatrics. And this one is a quick take. So antimicrobial stewardship can impact patient safety, outcomes, and have an impact on resistance patterns. There are many components to this, this sort of conceptual thing that we do, including choosing the right medication, using antibiotics only when necessary, and using them for the correct amount of time. It is currently estimated that about a third of all pediatric outpatient prescriptions exceed guideline recommended duration, and specifically looking at antibiotics for skin and soft tissue infections, it's estimated that over three-quarters of prescriptions are written for too long of a period of time. These authors from three pediatric urgent cares put together a multidisciplinary QI team that included providers, nurses, 
infectious disease providers, a pharmacist, a biostatistician, and then use the plan, do, study, act approach, which I think is becoming pretty common in these QI initiatives, to understand the issue and design a locally relevant potential solution. Basically, phase one was educational, with 15-minute didactics at each site dispelling some myths and informing providers that IDSA recommends five to seven days of antibiotics for most skin and soft tissue infections. Phase two was modifying the EHR so that when a provider went to order a cephalixin or clinda, that the short course was the default option. And phase three was providing monthly project updates to the providers working at these three sites. In the one-year study period, Over 2,000 kids met inclusion criteria for skin and soft tissue infections, and the proportion receiving an appropriate duration, defined as 5 to 7 days of oral antibiotics, increased from 60%, which was the baseline, to over 85%. And this improvement was sustained over multiple months. In terms of safety, that is sort of a quick look at return visits to the ED the number did not change, stayed about 1% in the pre and post period. Now, it's possible that, you know, patients were seen outside of these three urgent cures for some follow-up issue, but I can't imagine why that'd be different in the pre-period or the post-period. So I think this is just another one of those examples of a great little QI project turned publication that also had a real clinical impact. Editor's Commentary This is another well-designed QI project turned research paper in which the authors used a relatively simple intervention across a set of pediatric urgent cares to quickly and sustainably increase the proportion of kids with skin and soft tissue infections that received an IDSA concordant duration of antibiotics. It's a good reminder that QI efforts can impact antibiotic stewardship and that the IDSA recommends five to seven days of antibiotics for most skin and soft tissue infections. Abstract number 12, buprenorphine versus methadone for opioid use disorder in pregnancy. This is by Suarez et al., and it's in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this is a great study, but only has limited value for the emergency department, so I'll try to do it pretty quickly. So an issue is what treatment pregnant women with opioid use disorder should receive. And we should start off by saying, and this is like, you know, should be like flashing red lights, that any treatment for opioid use disorder is preferred over no treatment for opioid use disorder, okay? Of course, opioid use treatment is is risky, right? In particular, infants may be born premature, they may have low birth weight, and they may suffer from neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is basically opioid withdrawal in the first few days of life, which sounds like a pretty terrible way to enter the world. A randomized controlled trial comparing buprenorphine to methadone was conducted in 2010, and it showed a lower incidence of this neonatal abstinence syndrome among women assigned to buprenorphine compared to those with methadone. However, that study was severely limited because it had only 120 total women involved, and there was differential loss to follow-up. 33% of the women in the buprenorphine group were lost to follow-up versus 15% in the methadone group. And so that could be postulated that those women stopped taking buprenorphine, the ones that were lost to follow-up, and they went back to heroin and 
therefore their birth outcomes might have been much worse. So we just don't know. There's just a lot of ambiguity at the end of that trial. This study uses a large Medicaid data set from 2000 to 2018 to identify pregnancies exposed to methadone or buprenorphine that result in live births. The key outcome is the development of the neonatal abstinence syndrome in the child, along with other markers of neonatal health, including birth weight, preterm birth, and then there's other stuff like that are more like maternal complications, need for C-section or other severe maternal complications. These authors identified about 11,000 pregnant persons exposed to buprenorphine during the study period and 4,400 exposed to methadone in the study period. Actually, I should even, they, some were exposed early in pregnancy, some were exposed late, some were exposed both. It's an administrative data set so they could do a, a variety of analyses. Outcomes significantly favored buprenorphine. Neonatal abstinence syndrome occurred in 50% of those exposed to bup, but 70% of those exposed to methadone. Preterm birth was 14% in the bup group versus 25% in the methadone group. Low birth weight was similarly favored in bup, 8% in the bup group, 15% in the methadone group. Risks of C-section and maternal complications were the same across the two groups. The authors did a host of deeper analyses to test whether the buprenorphine group had less severe opioid use disorder than the methadone group, and that's like it's confounding by indication, but they didn't find any evidence of that. The bup group actually had a higher incidence of comorbid mental health disorders and stuff like that that usually are associated with birth outcomes. So overall, this paper really highlights the value of buprenorphine therapy for opioid use disorder compared with methadone in pregnant women. That's not an ER thing. I mean, none of us, I don't think, are going to be prescribing either of these medications to someone you discover is pregnant, but it's something I think we should know about. You know, you, you have a patient that's pregnant, has opioid use disorders, actively using heroin. We should be informing them that there is a way forward here. I mean, we should be doing that for everybody, but particularly highlighting the utility of buprenorphine while you're trying to figure out a way to hand that patient off to somebody who can help them get into those addiction services. Editor's commentary. This is an excellent population-based study that shows exposure to buprenorphine as compared to methadone is associated with improved birth outcomes in women with opioid use disorder. The study is in line with the only trial on this topic previously published. Given the complexity of conducting clinical trials in pregnant women with opioid use disorder, this type of observational data will likely need to serve as the basis for evidence-based decision-making for the foreseeable future. Abstract number 13. Sodium polystyrene sulfonate versus sodium zirconium silosalicylate for the treatment of hyperkalemia in the ED. This is by Hasara et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. The management of hyperkalemia includes shifting potassium into the cells, stabilizing cardiac membranes when appropriate, and eliminating potassium from the body. Elimination can be achieved via hemodialysis, diuretics, or by using a cation exchange resin. Sodium polystyrene sulfonate, which is kaexalate, has been in use in the U.S. since 1958 and was basically the only option available to us until 2018 when sodium zirconium silosalicylate, or lokelma, was FDA approved. To date, there have been no published studies comparing the two head-to-head. 
This is a single-center retrospective cohort study from an ED describing patients who got medications using their ED hyperkalemia treatment order set between 2019 and 2021, who were adults, had hyperkalemia confirmed on laboratory testing, received one of these cation exchange resins, and had a follow-up potassium available. They state that a single member of the team essentially did the whole chart review. That's what they say. One human did the whole thing, but provide no specifics on the chart review methodology, what their training was, whether or not they were blinded to the study hypothesis, where they got the information, where they looked in the chart. No methods. No methods, or how they handled anything. But they did say, we use quality assurance checks. Yeah. But they don't say what they want. You know, I don't want to harp on the no methods bit too much. I mean, retrospective studies, even if you do everything pristinely, are still not great, right? But there is a fundamental thing, authors out there, that somebody reading your paper should be able to replicate your study, you know? And if you don't give the methods of like how you do this stuff, I could get the exact same data set, the exact same material, and come up with a totally different conclusion. And that's really a problem. Yeah, I think that's true. And it also, it, it just, you know, it, it's hard to believe the findings of a study, especially if yeah. they're compelling, if there's no methods given, because you just don't, you just don't know. Well, there's too many unknowns. If another doctor, if Dr. Aurora tried to follow their thing, you have no idea, no, it would be totally unrealistic to think you'd come up with the same point estimates because you're going to find the information in different parts of the charts. You have a different bias going in, all this kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's really problematic, guys. So they screened 885 patients, but excluded most, with the most common reason being that they didn't get one of these cation exchange resins. That was 722 of them. And after exclusions, basically there were 54 patients in the SPS group and 51 patients in the SZC group. Most baseline clinical characteristics were the same across the groups, other than the fact that the baseline potassium levels were significantly higher in the K-exalate group, 6.5 versus 6.2. And also, the presence of bradycardia was much more common in the K-exalate group, 26% of the patients bradycardic versus 6.4% in the Lokelma group. For the primary outcome, the mean change in serum potassium from baseline to the first repeat level following administration of one of the cation exchange resins was exactly the same in both groups at 1.1 milliequivalent per liter. Safety outcomes were similar across the groups, including need for hemodialysis, length of stay, and mortality, but the patients overall actually did not appear to be very sick, as 90% of the patients in both groups were admitted to the ward. The main limitations to this study revolve around its retrospective design, complete lack of description of the study procedures, no way of knowing why one agent was chosen over another, and no recording of the timing of concomitant therapies like calcium, sodium bicarb, and insulin, which could impact the interpretation of these results. So they say they both kind of work the same, but with no methods and a little bit sicker group getting kexalate. Not exactly sure that's true, but I do believe they both work. Edit this commentary. In this retrospective study with limited methods looking at patients with hyperkalemia in the ED, the authors report that among patients who received a cation exchange resin, sodium polystyrene sulfonate, or kaexalate, worked about the same as sodium zirconium cyclosalicylate, lokelma, 
both dropping the potassium level by about one milliequivalent per liter. Flaws in the study design did not allow us to make definitive conclusions about safety and efficacy, but it is reassuring that there was no signal that one was clearly better than the other or clearly worse. Abstract number 14, reducing diagnostic errors in the emergency department at the time of patient treatment. This is by Pets et al. and it's in Emergency Medicine Australasia, the other EMA, the rival EMA. But we like them. We do. We're like friendly rivals, you know, yeah. not, the, not the kind of rivals that like, not USC, UCLA rivals. No. <laughs> but this paper, I mean, it's strange, real strange. I want you to pay attention here because I, I got some questions for you, Dr. Aurora. So it's really, it's, it's part of the long line of studies looking at how well emergency physicians' radiographic interpretation agrees with the radiologist final read. That's sort of the, the basics, right? This is, of course, key given that so many studies are not read by the radiologist until the patient has departed the ED. We covered an article recently that I thought was pretty cool, which was looking at how artificial intelligence systems might be able to sort of highlight concerning areas on an x-ray to improve physician accuracy, and I could see maybe how that might work in an emergency setting. These authors go somewhere I've never expected. Basically, They have a system at a hospital in Australia wherein immediately after shooting the x-ray, the radiographer puts a preliminary image evaluation, PIE, P-I-E, preliminary image evaluation, into the PAC system so the emergency provider can see it as they review the x-ray. Please note, I said radiographer, not radiologist. Why? Because it's the x-ray technician putting this in not a clinician. Yeah, we've covered papers like this before. An x-ray technician? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's Boy, certain I, countries I, where... I blacked out. <laughs> no, no, no. We've definitely covered several on EMA oh, where they... Man. When they use that word radiographer, that has a no, different meaning. That is but not... But their training is a little bit different too. The techs are so... We've, it's unclear we've, what the training differences are, but they probably are somewhat different. Anyway, apparently, like you said, this type of system has been deployed at a variety of institutions in Australia and the UK. So in both places, they have this kind of thing. I just personally, you know, there's always these little blind spots, you know, and like my research understanding, my training, and then, you know, some of the stuff that we've reviewed over the years. And this is just one that was total blind. I read this paper three times before I realized what was happening. So this is an evaluation of the diagnostic accuracy and agreement between the x-ray technician, emergency provider, and the radiologist final read. So the actual study involved modifying the radiology system for a short period of time such that the x-ray technician put in their interpretation of this PIE, but the PIE was not forwarded to the emergency department provider. The PIE and the ED provider interpretation were then compared with the radiologist's final interpretation. Cases were excluded if the radiologist interpretation was available before the patient was discharged, because maybe the ED provider could have seen it then and then readjusted what they had to say. And they were also excluded if they had another form of advanced imaging for the exact same reason. Various measures of agreement were performed. The study was performed over this three-week period when they turned that feature of the system off. There were about 800 films that met the study entry criteria and, you know, were not excluded. And overall, the radiographer PIE demonstrated 93% agreement 
with the radiologist final read compared with 89% for the emergency clinician. Pretty similar, right? But you know, maybe a little bit better. Who knows? Kappa for the Kappa one measure of agreement is the, the Kappa correlation or coefficient for the radiographer was 0.81, which is widely viewed as excellent. That's the percent agreement beyond chance. So it's great. The emergency clinician was a little worse at 0.75. Still very, very good, but not excellent. The general trend was that both the radiographer and emergency physician or clinician showed excellent specificity. The radiographer was 98% specific when they had a finding. The ED doc was 95% specific, meaning that when we saw something like a fracture or something, that it was there. You know, we, we didn't overcall very many things. For both groups had a lower sensitivity than maybe we would want. Both were right at around 80%. The emergency physician was at 82%. The radiographer was at 80%. And for both of these groups, the numbers dropped for pediatric patients. I didn't write them down, but they were like down by about 10%, both in terms of sensitivity and specificity. Now, interestingly, if you combined both, the radiographer interpretation and the ED interpretation, then the sensitivity rose up to 90% and the specificity fell, but only very slightly down to 93%. So there it was like, the theory then would be that if the radiographer said, oh, there's a fracture, the ED doc missed it, would look at that and go, oh, no, there is a fracture. I agree with that. And then they, they would have added sensitivity without much of a cost in terms of specificity. Yeah, you know, I mean, that, that's sort of basically where this paper stake six claim, like this could be a good strategy. Did they make any comment at all on what the missed findings were, if they were, you know, incidentaloma kind of things, or if they were actually relevant to why the patient was there? So that's like my next bullet point on my notes is that there was no discussion of the things that were missed. Because if we crushed it in everything that matters. That's right. That's, so that's what yeah. matters. Were they clinically important versus incidental stuff? Was there a difference in the clinical importance of the things that we missed compared with the things that the radiographer missed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? It's just not described at all. Maybe there's a follow-up paper that's going to look at that, but there's no discussion of it whatsoever. So I'm overall not sure how to feel about this. On the one hand, of course, it's great to get improved accuracy and maybe having these x-ray technicians do this you know, is helpful. Certainly in emergency medicine, we tend to value improved sensitivity too. So you know, that seems very useful, but, you know, at, a, at my core, it feels like the wrong way to go, right? Like, you know, we should be working towards getting radiologist interpretations in the ED, not another level of, you know, apparently substandard interpretations to help us sort of muddle through this. So I, I got mixed feelings on this, especially if it takes a lot to train them to do this. Except for the fact that two wrongs make a right. Don't forget that. Edit this commentary. In this study comparing x-ray technician initial interpretation of films with emergency clinician interpretation, the authors find that both are approximately 80% sensitive and highly specific compared with the gold standard, which was the radiologist interpretation. When combined together, the sensitivity improved to 90% without much cost in terms of specificity. The residual question is whether this strategy really solves the challenges of real-time x-ray interpretation or simply puts a small band-aid on the situation and inappropriately reduces the pressures hospitals and radiologists should feel to provide 24-7 interpretation services. 
Abstract number 15. CT utilization in evaluation of skin and soft tissue extremity infections in the ED, a retrospective cohort study by Lee et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And as I alluded to before, this is the second paper this month focused on differentiating between cellulitis and deeper necrotizing infections when evaluating an ED patient with a skin and soft tissue infection. Scoring systems leave a lot to be desired. Lab testing can be of some help, but in cases where the physical exam and history are just not clear, you can turn to a CT scan to help you make this diagnosis. Now, CT will definitely make it, but we can't use it in every case as it has the downsides of radiation and taking a lot of time, which can not only impact that patient's potential morbidity and mortality, but every other patient in the emergency department if we're CTing a bunch of cellulitis cases. The objective of this study is to characterize how often CT is used in cases of SSTI and to describe how these studies impact clinical and operational sort of ED length of stay and stuff outcomes. It's a retrospective cohort study from seven EDs where authors used ICD-10 codes to identify adult patients with a skin and soft tissue infection on an extremity and followed this with an EMR review to collect demographic, clinical, outcome, and operational data for all cases. Unfortunately, the chart review methodology, again, is not described at all. So like Mike's point before, if you wanted to replicate this study, too bad. Can't do it. Other than saying they had two EM residents who did all the chart review and their kappa was 0.71. That's all we get. They identified almost 5,000 cases of SSTI over two years with a median age of 49 years old, 57% male, 6% with a history of IV drug use, 30% with diabetes, and 30% being admitted to the hospital. Overall, 7% of the patients had a CT, and use was more common among patients with a history of IV drug use, 18% versus 6%, but the positive rate for finding of a deep infection was the same in both groups at just over 20%. Other clinical factors associated with CT utilization were fever, tachycardia, and hypotension. Patients who got a CT were more likely to be admitted, 77% versus 22%, and more likely to undergo a procedure within 48 hours, 19% versus 1%. The authors state that ED length of stay was longer in the CT cohort, and I believe this, but as they do not define their variables at all, it's hard to know how reliable their numbers actually are. The study has lots of notable limitations, including we don't know if the CTs were actually ordered in ambiguous cases by the ED provider, like they just weren't sure and wanted an answer, or in highly likely cases where the surgeon said, I need a CT for my operative planning or whatever it is. They don't report on physical exam findings at all. So we just have no information about the patients there. There's no way to know how certain the clinicians were before the scan. And as I mentioned before, the chart review methodology was not well described, and that could lead to bias and missed cases. But generally speaking, it seems like when we got a CT, we did find something a good portion of the time. So it's not like we're using it totally indiscriminately, although this paper can't really tell us which cases we should use it in and which ones we shouldn't. In this retrospective cohort study, the authors found that about 7% of cases of extremity skin and soft tissue infections received a CT scan as part of their evaluation. 
and suggests that clinical markers of illness like hypotension were drivers for the imaging and states that a quarter of them turned out to be positive. Unfortunately, this paper can't tell us which patients with an SSTI might actually need the CT, but the high positive rate justifies the use of CT in some cases and also kind of suggests that we're already doing a pretty good job at picking out which patients might benefit from having one. Quick take. Abstract number 16, and this is a quick take. A quality improvement initiative to reduce abdominal x-ray use in pediatric patients presenting with constipation. This is by McSweeney et al., and it's in the Journal of Pediatrics. So basically, the summary is right here. Constipation is not a radiographic diagnosis. That's the main point. All expert societies agree that it is not a radiographic diagnosis. X-rays have terrible test characteristics for constipation. They are neither sensitive nor specific and often result in pursuing additional unnecessary diagnostic testings. Do not order X-rays for children with suspected constipation. Okay, so these authors look at a six-year experience. This is awesome. Trying to convince the GI doctors at Children's Hospital of Boston So not like some chumps, right? GI doctors at Children's Hospital of Boston not to order x-rays for children being evaluated for constipation. During those six years, they harassed these doctors. They published the guidelines. They put it on the internet. They sent them report cards and they did targeted interventions for truly recalcitrant doctors. The study itself examines the effect of this quality improvement initiative by determining the proportion of new patients to the GI clinic referred for constipation who had an abdominal x-ray Through this whole process, they were able to decrease the use of x-rays from 24%... Drumroll... ...to 11%. So it's not bad. That's not bad. Without any clear evidence of misdiagnoses or um, adverse events. And, you know, it's a little dicey how they actually went through that. But they, they looked for ED visits and stuff like that. Most of the effect occurred when the administration began internally publishing the society guidelines. Not when the guidelines were published by the societies, but when they kind of pushed it out and put it on their intranet. And then the other stuff, the report cards and all that kind of stuff, was really more of a maintenance phase kind of thing. Now, of course, in the ED, kids may be presenting with abdominal pain, vomiting, and you may elect to get an x-ray you know, for them to evaluate for something else, and you may note large amounts of stool in the colon or something like that. That can probably be forgiven on occasion, although x-rays in the, you know, of bellies is usually not a very good approach. But when constipation is the issue and there's low concern for anything else, let us learn from this quality improvement effort and these smart doctors from Children's Hospital and not order x-rays for constipation. I think the only other learning thing for me, since you like to talk about QA projects that are turned, you know, what was it that moved the needle? And I did sort of get this sense through reading the paper, and it's a QI project, so you know, the, you know how the writing on these, these QI projects to research projects go. It's a little vague, but it did seem, looking at the graphs and looking at the writing, that what really moved that needle was the local institutional adoption of a society guideline. And that seemed to be the driver. And that actually resonates with me. I don't know if that resonates with you, but like, you know, we hear all the stuff that ASEP says this, ASEP. Once you label it with your department, your hospital, et cetera, and the ASEP piece, that kind of moves it. So I kind of took that. If you're thinking about QI projects, think about that local adoption 
of broader guidelines. Yeah, I think that's fair. Although most of this QI work will say that that's sort of part of the planning phase is to figure out why the problem exists. So, you know, in this particular case, it may have been that these docs were unaware of the guidelines, or it may have been that, you know, they didn't feel like their organization had jumped on board or whatever, but just knowing that perhaps it was something involving the guidelines may have been part of the planning phase of this QI. So I think the whole thing with these solutions is they really can't be generalized out. You have to sort of do a local investigation of what is the source of the problem and then target that specifically. Well, a lot of times you don't even have guidelines. So that's like a whole other thing. But so that's my there, point. There may not be guidelines, yeah, actually. But there's I like think, this but. thing about like institutional, like the, your, your institution supports. It's one thing for some, you know, highfalutin doctors out in Europe to tell you not to get an x-ray. It's another thing when your department puts out something. It feels, I always feel like that gives people a certain amount of courage and sort of defensibility in their actions that's a little more than just sort of vague, like, oh, a textbook said to do something. Editor's commentary. X-rays are generally not indicated for constipation, period. House of Medicine. Abstract number 17. Evaluating urgent care center referrals to the ED. And this is by Poyorena et al. from the Journal of the American College of Emergency Physicians. Open. And as I sort of looked at the full paper, I realized our very own Jess Monis is an author on this oh, paper. Look at that. Hey, Jess, congratulations. So the number of urgent care centers in the U.S. is skyrocketing. And generally speaking, they are set up to offer a more convenient and often, although not always, a lower cost option for ED patients with low acuity conditions. However, they are limited in the services that they can provide and the tests that they offer, so by their very design, some of the patients who come there have to be referred to an emergency department to get some care. The question these authors are asking this couple is, what proportion of these referrals are appropriate, and how often does the diagnosis given in the urgent care match the one that was given in the ED? It's a retrospective chart review from a single emergency department in Arizona where they used a text explorer to look through the ED records or the EMR for the terms urgent care, emergency department, referral, or transfer, which identified 31,000 potential (laughs) cases. They had decided in advance that they wanted to look at 300 cases. So basically, they took three abstractors who manually screened through this 32,000 until they hit their target of 300, where the patient was seen in an urgent care and then was referred or transferred to the ED on the same day. Cases where patients came into the ED because their symptoms got worse were excluded. They really were looking for one. Urgent care said, you need to go to the ED right now. The referral was deemed appropriate if any of the following criteria were met. The patient was admitted. They got some imaging other than an x-ray. A specialist consultation was required. Or critical care was provided in the ED that's not conventionally available at most urgent care centers. The mean age of the final sample is 52 years. And most patients, almost about 96%, self-presented to the ED as opposed to being transferred directly. 1.7% were admitted to an observation unit and 13.7% were admitted to the inpatient side. 40.7% had some advanced imaging, and 21% got a specialty consult. Most of them were cardiology consults. Using those 
aforementioned criteria, those four things that had to have happen, 55% of patients did not require ED services. Some of the more notable subgroups that did not need ED care most of the time were those referred in for abnormal EKG. 67% of those did not need ED care. And lacerations. 80% of those were determined to be simple lacerations that should have been closed in the urgent care and didn't need an ED provider. Some of the more notable subgroups that did need ED care were abdominal pain and head trauma where basically 23% of the abdominal pain patients were deemed not to need ED care, so the vast majority did, and 25% of the head trauma patients. They did a nice job explaining how they defined and categorized the initial and final diagnosis, sort of the urgent care diagnosis and the ED diagnosis. I was a little less interested in this, but they found 64% of them to be discordant. So, but that's not surprising to me. People code all sorts of stuff and... Yeah, they no, they were pretty good about it. They kind of said, like, if the patient was sent in for abdominal pain and they had, you know, pancreatitis, that was concordant. So they it didn't have to match up exactly. It had to be, like, general categories. And they still said they were off by a lot. I'm not exactly sure why. But generally speaking, it's a pretty well-done and well-written study with some limitations, being that the sample size is pretty small. It's only 300 cases. You know, if they were to look at the next 300 or 900 or 1,200, the numbers could swing quite a bit. There was no urgent care documentation to review, and that's really important. The systems were not you know, a, a joint right. Right. EMR. So everything they got was from the ED chart, including the urgent care diagnosis, which maybe could explain some of it, because that came right. from the patient. Right. right. They said, I was sent here for a toe injury, and maybe that's not why they were sent there at all. Their definition of what constitutes an appropriate referral seems pretty reasonable to me, but may differ from site to site and has never been validated. And finally, in my mind, it's actually possible that their findings are an underestimate due to miscategorization because I think we've all been in that scenario where, you know, a patient was seen at an urge of whatever, some other hospital, urgent care center, head trauma. They come to the ED with this note and bold that's like, patient needs a head CT, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. And if they had come to you directly, maybe you wouldn't have done it. But because you're like, oh, now there's this other medical record out there saying they need one, maybe your threshold is a little bit lower. I'm not saying it is, yeah. but I think we've all sort of been in that scenario. But I still but have a question though. Like, I mean, an urgent care is not an emergency department and an urgent care provider in no way represents themselves to be a board-certified emergency physician. So why are we not getting credit for it? Like, I mean, you know, so you see an urgent care nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, or somebody who's like, you know, in family medicine, and they're like, you know, chest pain is scary to me. I don't know. The EKG has an inverted T wave. I don't know what MIs look like. I send them to the ER. We're quite accustomed to dealing with that. We don't usually get a cardiology consult for, you know, something that's not very scary. And we discharge that patient. I don't see why that's a bad referral, but that would be considered an inappropriate referral in this context. It would. And I think that's sort of, that leads really well into like their discussion section, uh -huh. which is the discussion section is actually pretty well written. They're not trying to suggest at all that this urgent care or urgent cares in general are providing low quality care. Right. They say all the stuff you just said, these people are not trained emergency physicians. They're going to have some uncertainty about things we are very comfortable with. What they're doing on the flip side is emphasizing a couple of points. They're saying, look, these were things that we feel should have been handled locally. So they're kind of saying, 
Take a look at our findings, and specifically looking at lacerations and EKG interpretation, and saying, if you want to do some education specifically designed for urgent care providers, these would be two really high-yield places to do it. Making sure that these people are comfortable, having at least a basic understanding of what an EKG looks like, and how to close simple lacerations. They're also saying it's really important for EDs and urgent cares to work together to establish formal referral systems with provider-to-provider communication that can minimize inappropriate transfers and make sure that clinical features are not lost along the way. Because this is silly that they just show up with no documentation. Yeah, they have that prescription pad that says, go to ER, chest pain. (laughs) And then to address your last question is, you know, they're kind of saying, well, the EKG, they talk about that very specifically and say, yeah, we could try to train them how to do EKGs a little better. But, you know, if you can't do it, Maybe you can make this like a cardiology consultant available via like a telemedicine or instead of sending the ED, initiating a whole new visit, blah, blah, blah. If there was a cardiologist who could look at that via telemedicine and go, nah, you're okay. Go ahead and discharge them. Maybe that's a solution to sort of deal with some uncomfortableness. So I think they're, yeah. they're getting I mean, I to see your the point. point. I yeah. like it. I do. I just do struggle with this idea that we're trying to set ourselves up as like not the referral point for people who are scared. I agree the telemedicine concept, even calling us and invoking a telemedicine visit with like, hey, can you take a look at this laceration or whatever else you think, you know, that would be potentially useful. Yeah, I think another way of thinking about this sort of avoidable thing, and like I said, at no point do they sort of make it seem like you should have dealt with this. Like that's not how the discussion's written. That's not the tone of the paper. It's just kind of identifying problem areas, you know, like we get a lot of referrals for abnormal EKG and nothing ends up well, happening. I, mean, I guess that's why Maybe there's... that's a, like, a, like a place to focus some area of education, attention, telemedicine consultant. I think that's what they're trying well, to say. I think st- you're getting too in the weeds. Well, from a strategic perspective, I mean, that's sort of why MRAP is getting more into the urgent care rap space, right? Because we think that there's a lot of this stuff that we can help educate those folks who are out there doing urgent care work on. Agreed. Editor's commentary. In this interesting retrospective study, the authors looked at a sample of 300 cases where patients seen in the ED had been sent there by an urgent care center and found over half the referrals to be inappropriate, meaning that they felt the urgent care center should have been able to handle the cases locally in an ideal scenario. This may be an undercount, as it's hard to know how much of the ED workup was driven by the condition as opposed to the request stated specifically in the referral. The small sample size limits definitive conclusions, but the messages are, in my mind, that we need to work with urgent cares to set best practices, standardize a method of communication between urgent cares and the ED, and help educate urgent care providers on high-yield topics that are probably in their scope of practice. Please see UC Maximus for further details. Abstract number 18. Changes in physician work hours and implications for workforce capacity and work-life balance, 2001 to 2021. This is by Goldman et al., and it's in JAMA Internal Medicine. So we've covered a few papers in the last couple of years about physician workforce data. In particular, there was a paper in the Annals of Emergency Medicine recently that suggested that attrition out of the workforce was faster for emergency physicians than previously estimated. So the anticipated workforce surplus of emergency physicians that we sort of like were talking about in 2020 
maybe significantly off. Of course, then COVID happened in 2020. And in the last two, three years, it seems like there have been a lot of changes throughout society that have changed all sorts of aspects of work. And this paper adds a new dimension to this physician supply question. The previous studies really have almost always focused on the number of practicing physicians. This paper asks not just what's that number, but how much are they actually working? Because obviously, if everyone, if we have the same number of physicians and everybody's working 10% less, then we're short 10%. And that has a huge implication for you know, training and service needs. The authors look at the current population survey, which is this massive government survey instrument that's been used for decades to estimate all sorts of things about labor and demographic trends in the United States. Each year, 60,000 households participate. And mechanically, what they do is they repeatedly survey the same household every month for eight months. And they ask you all sorts of questions about whether you're working, how much you're working, where you're working, what kind of industries. It's part of the way they get their unemployment rate data that you get, you know, that they get every month. After those eight months, your household's off the hook and they just sample another eight households eight months later and so on forever. Self-identified physicians and APPs who were working were included in this analysis. The key variable of interest was the response to the question of how many hours worked in the last week. So they ask you, how many did you work in the last week? And they do that again, eight times per person, et cetera. The data was analyzed according to the specific occupation, whether the person was a physician, nurse practitioner, PA, and also by gender and also by whether or not the person was a parent, the worker was a parent. Because the survey has been continuous for decades, temporal trends can be observed. Over the 20-year study period, there were just about 18,000 unique physician households who contributed, and they contributed a total of just about 90,000 months of survey, because each one does about eight months. What did they find? The overall number of practicing physicians increased in the United States by 31% between, and this is physicians, not NPs and PAs, just excluding them, increased by 30% over that 20-year period from about 700,000 to about 950,000, okay? It actually peaked in 2019 and has been declining over the last couple of years. So the total number of physicians has dropped. It hasn't dropped a lot in the last couple of years, but like a few percent, like two or 3%. What's really noticeable was the number of hours worked weekly has dropped by about 10% during the study period from a high of just about 53 hours per week in 2001 to the current, which is about 48 hours per week in 2021. So it's about a 10% decline. This was true for men and women physicians. The sharpest drop came from male physicians who were parents. In 2001, they were the longest hour working cohort. They worked on average 57 hours per week, and now they're right at that average. They're right at 48 hours per week, which is the same as pretty much everybody else. Women physicians who are parents were the only ones that stayed flat. All the other women non-parents, men parents, men non-parents, everybody else dropped to that sort of 48-hour mark. Women parents stayed flat at 44 hours throughout the whole study period. They didn't decline or rise. Unfortunately, the survey, even though it's really big, is still too small to slice and dice by specialty. These are all physicians in America. They actually have added a question in the more recent couple of years that look at whether they're surgeons, 
or medical doctors, but that's not going to you know, give us super valuable information on the um, emergency medicine side. But still, I think that this is interesting, right? This combination of declining hours worked, greater attrition, right? Like a declining number, a greater attrition in emergency medicine that's been observed in other studies and an expected rapid increase in the number of physicians retiring in the next 10 years. That's just due to demographic factors. In addition to sort of changes in the post-COVID work era, really suggest that this idea that there's going to be a surplus of emergency physicians running around for the next 10 years seems like it's not correct. And more likely, the future of you know, physician workforce and emergency physician workforce in particular may be dominated by shortages as opposed to surpluses. That's certainly good news for any potential residents thinking yeah. about no, joining the world because that yeah. jobs report sent like a oh, shockwave sure. through the the system of, you know, the literally the entire medical, you know, the medical schools all over the country, yep. applications to EM programs dropped and stuff. And it's not surprising to me at all that, you know, we're seeing some papers now that go, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah that was not, not quite... that was a little harsh. Yeah. That was like a doomsday scenario. Yeah. Let's look at real world scenarios. Yeah. Which are nothing, look nothing like well, that. Well, and of course there's been a massive shift in like, you know, I think this description that they're doing of workforce hours and stuff and hours worked feels true too. And those other ones didn't even address that. They were all just like, how many? What's the number? What's the number? What's the number? But of course it's massively important if the number is working 20% less shifts and because to manage work-life balance and stuff, it has huge implications. It was just basically ignored. So I really, you know, I thank these authors. I wish we had emergency medicine-specific numbers of shifts and things like that. But absent that, I think this is some really useful information. We can it's it's kind of like your credo, right? Don't work harder. Work less. <laughs> I thought it was just don't work harder. <laughs> and don't work harder. Editor's commentary. This study of American household labor behaviors demonstrates a sharp decline in the number of weekly hours physicians have been working over the last 20 years. There has also been a slight decrease in the number of total physicians in the workforce over the last couple years. And these data predate significant shocks to the workforce that occurred as a result of the COVID pandemic. Though this data is not specialty specific, I believe this is further evidence that the expected glut of emergency physicians and corresponding dearth of employment opportunities is likely to be untrue. Quick take. Abstract number 19. Feasibility of patient-controlled analgesia for rural and remote transfers. This is by Watchorn et al. from the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. This one is a quick take, kind of an interesting little paper. In rural Canada, which I didn't know much about before reading this paper. Isn't it all, isn't it all rural? <laughs> yeah. Right when it it Tell me how uh, cosmopolitan Montreal and Toronto are. Go for it, guys. Dear EMA, sorry, but I don't know what you're talking about. Canada has at least 32 large urban centers with over 100,000 people, six of which have over a million people. Toronto's got over 5 million, so... Maybe you can include that in your little audio project. Again, sorry. When a patient is transferred, the ambulances are usually staffed by something called primary care paramedics, who can actually not provide most forms of analgesia, including opioids. They can't give any opioids in an ambulance. They can only give one analgesic medication. If any guess what it is, you'll never guess it. If it's not acetaminophen, I have no idea. Inhaled nitrous oxide. Oh, yeah. So that sounds like a great idea in a confined space 
you're going to rural Canada, you're taking a four-hour trip, and you just got nitrous flowing all over the place. You can imagine this makes transferring patients with painful conditions very challenging, especially because the transfer time from some of these rural places can be several hours. The authors of this paper basically describe a pilot project set up by the Golden and District Hospital, Interior Health Authority, and BC Emergency Health Services in Golden, BC, where patients with painful conditions who were receiving opioids at the sending facility before they left were offered a morphine PCA to be administered during transport. They then report on safety and efficacy among a non-consecutive sample of 84 patients. The average age was 47, 57% of the patients were male, and 77% were being transferred for orthopedic injuries. The average transport time was about three and a half hours, and the average morphine dose that the patient self gave themselves was 18 milligrams. In terms of safety, three out of 84 had a desaturation event to less than 90%, all of which resolved with two liter nasal cannula, and there were no serious adverse events of any kind. In terms of efficacy, the average pain score at the start to the end of the transport was four. Four when they left, four when they got there, Patient and paramedic satisfaction scores were 4.6 and 4.7 out of 5, retrospectively. So this was not set up as a research study, right? This is a little pilot project, and there are several limitations, including reporting on a non-consecutive sample of patients, pain scores only being available before and after the transport, no description of what medications might have been given before transport, like if they got a big slug of narcotics or something like that. It's a small N. So if there are some rare serious adverse events, they might not have been caught in this sample. And most importantly, there's no control group. So it really is impossible to know what the impact is versus if they just gotten like two milligrams of Dilaudid before they left to see if this really has any value. But I think in my mind, it's good to see these agencies sort of being patient advocates, recognizing this as a potential problem and coming up with creative solutions. Editor's commentary. In this description of a small pilot project in rural Canada, the authors describe the use of a morphine PCA among patients with a painful condition being transferred and found it to be safe with high satisfaction scores. Without a control group, it is hard to comment on efficacy, and we need a larger consecutive sample to really evaluate for more rare, serious adverse events if they do exist. The organizations behind this effort should be commended for coming up with a creative solution and putting patients first in an environment where transport times exceed three hours and no other analgesia can be given en route. Abstract number 20, Conceptualization of Surrogate Decision-Making Among Spokespersons for Chronically Ill Patients by Van Scoy et al. in JAMA Network Open. And... You know, this is, in my view, a really important paper, actually. More of a thought piece than anything else, although it is technically a study. So the idea here is that we often communicate with surrogate decision makers, right? I mean, we do it all the time in the emergency department. Everybody does. The most obvious situation is when we're sort of discussing resuscitation for older people with ambiguous, you know, sort of DNR orders who are not able to communicate. But it's not limited to that, right? It could also involve any number of people who aren't able to clearly express their preferences, including children. And it might, of course, involve decisions that are not nearly so life and death as, you know, resuscitation orders. The authors here note that many trials, and this is an RO1-funded study and everything. These are serious people here that look at this. Many trials 
over many decades of research have been performed and what their goal of uh, making advanced care planning more consistent with patient wishes, right? Like some surrogate decision may understand the patient wishes, da, 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 then follow it out and see if it happens. And they've largely failed. They've not been good. And these guys, you can almost feel the frustration in their introduction. They're like, why is this happening? Why do we keep doing these things and it keeps not really producing the kind of results we want? Well, it could be that the surrogate does not know the patient very well, right? So they're just like, I'm just doing what I want and the, you know, whatever. It also could be that physicians are biased towards treatment. You know, there's uncertainty around sort of treatment choices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are a whole bunch of reasons. But for this paper, they decided to focus on how do surrogate decision makers think about their responsibility in this capacity. And this was a qualitative study in which dyads of patients and surrogate decision makers were interviewed about preferences and how they thought about decision-making. Patients all had to have some kind of very serious chronic illness. Usually it was cancer, but it could be CHF, severe CHF, or end-stage COPD or something like that. The key prompt, and this is what they asked of the surrogate decision-makers, there were two of them, and they read as this. People sometimes have different understandings of what it means to make a surrogate decision. I'd like to learn what this concept means to you. In your own words, please tell me what making a surrogate medical decision means to you. Okay, so that was one of the major prompts. And then the other one was they said, do you perceive that there is a difference between making a surrogate decision and being an advocate? If so, can you tell me about that? So those are the they're distinguishing between what is a surrogate decision maker, what is an advocate, do the decision makers even see a difference there, etc. All the interviews were recorded and coded and did all that stuff. The surrogates were 90% women, mean age 62, 25% of them were black. It seemed like in general, they were the spouse of the person who was anticipated to not be able to make decisions at some point. So what'd they find? It really was kind of fascinating. In terms of what a surrogate decision maker means, right? The surrogates had four basic ideas about what that could be. And one was being the final decision maker. It means I have to make a decision. There was nothing about like, you know, how to inform that decision. It was just like, I've taken on a responsibility. The second one that was very commonly referred to was doing what's best for the patient. But it had, they were very explicit about this, that there was a notion that there is a best for the patient, that there's one solution that is the best one. And their job is to figure out what it is. And then they could either do it through a couple of different strategies. The third one was respecting patient wishes. Not the first one, but the third one. And the fourth one was being the patient's voice, making sure that they said what the patient you know, would say. And then they really got into this because it was sort of interesting because they said, even if the patient has a voice, right? Like they're like, ah, she doesn't like to talk a lot. So I'll talk for her, you know, which is not exactly how we usually conceptualize surrogate decision-making. And then Really interestingly, with this advocacy question, they said, okay, so what does it mean to be an advocate? And they said the exact same things. They're like, that's the exact same thing. And in fact, a third of the people could not, they explicitly said, I don't see any difference between being a surrogate decision maker and an advocate for the patient. And to me, that's like, whoa, what? You don't see a difference there? That's really wild to me because I see them as very different ideas, right? Like you advocate for your mom, whether you make decisions for her or not. It has nothing, they they seemingly in my mind have nothing to do with each other. 
And I think that's the take-home point is that, you know, I think of the role of surrogate decision makers, meaning, you know, you're supposed to help facilitate the delivery of care that's consistent with the patient's expressed or implied wishes, right? That's sort of what they said. How do you get goal-concordant care going? However, the surrogate decision maker likely doesn't see it in that light. The surrogate sees their role potentially very differently. They may be advocating for what they think is best for the patient, which might explain why like orders for DNR get reversed and stuff like that all of a sudden because they're not thinking about it in that exact same context. And so I'm not sure exactly how you take this to the bedside. I mean, I think one way is to try to be extremely explicit about the clinical question that you're asking, right? And helping to frame it around like things like, okay, did he or she say what they would want to do in this circumstance? Because this is the circumstance, you know, as opposed to sort of like, what do you think we should do? You know, because then they're looking for this best option as opposed to that option. So I think that that's a really important take-home point. It's going to be hard to sort of integrate this into my clinical practice, but I think it's useful. But it also highlights another point, which is that if you ask that question, which I think is the one we usually want to ask, the decision maker may give you the answer. They may say, oh, she wanted to be, you know, DNR, whatever she wanted, would never want surgery under those circumstances. But they may feel that they're not fulfilling their role as a decision maker. And they may feel very uncomfortable with making that decision because they think of this responsibility as much broader than just doing what, you know, grandma wanted. They are supposed to be advocating and doing for all these other things. So it really creates a, like a sort of an interesting frame in which I think we can start to try to get in the heads of the decision makers so that we can help, you know, let them do what they think they need to do as a decision maker, but also sort of redirect when necessary to make sure that we're respecting the patient's wishes and not just conflating all that stuff together and then asking them, hey, so what do you want to do? Editor's commentary. This is a qualitative study of surrogate decision makers examining how they think about their role as a surrogate and advocate for their loved one. The results largely suggest that there is intense conflation between the concepts of surrogacy and advocacy that may explain some of the failures of many interventions to actually achieve patient-specific, goal-concordant care for very ill people. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the April 2023 Ultra Summary. Jess Moan is here with Jenny Beck-Esme. How's it going, Jenny? You know, I cannot complain. I really can't. It's February, but it's been 60 degrees in New York City, <laughs> which is ridiculous and, you know, not great for the planet, but feels pretty nice on those 60 degree days and looking forward to time traveling with you into April. Ooh, nice, nice. Yeah, I'm actually feeling pretty good, too. I mm -hmm. finished my oral chemo two yes. days ago, six months Yay. of that. I am done. It has been decimating huge my feet. Milestone. Yeah. So this is huge. I'm just looking forward to moving forward. And that's been very exciting. I'm so thrilled for you. I, I just, I've been following along every step of the way. The audience has been following along every step of the way. So I think we all feel that milestone for you and we're so happy. Yeah. And you know what? I never missed a recording. 
Nope, you have not. You have been here every (laughs) single time. Every month I've done it. All right. Well, we've got some really great papers this month. Jenny and I are going to hit the highlights. And if you want a deeper dive, take a listen to Mike and Sanjay for more details. So why don't I start us off? Let's do it. Paper number one, effect of remifentanil versus neuromuscular blockers during rapid sequence intubation on successful intubation without major complications among patients at risk of aspiration, a randomized control trial. This French non-inferiority study looked at patients at risk for aspiration that were intubated in the OR and randomized them to receive either the rapid-onset opioid or a neuromuscular blocker. While this was not done in the ED, many of these patients had a pre-op fasting period of less than six hours, so not unlike patients we see. There were 1,150 subjects that were given either three to four mics per kg of remifentanil or one mg per kg of sucks or rock. The difference in the primary outcome, which was successful intubation on the first attempt without major complication, was about 6% in favor of the neuromuscular agent. In other words, remifentanil was in fact inferior. Remifentanil also had more severe adverse events. So for now, let's keep doing what we're doing. Love that as a take-home point. Do not do this. Solid take-home. Paper number two, zone one endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta versus resuscitative thoracotomy for patient resuscitation after severe hemorrhagic shock. The aorta registry prospectively collects data from 28 different trauma centers, specifically on patients who are over 16 and who've received an aortic occlusion. This paper looks at patients who had a zone one placement. So just to remind us all, that's below the level of the subclavian, but above the celiac arteries. And they wanted to compare Reboa to ED thoracotomy in terms of in-hospital survival, which was the primary outcome, and hospital length of stay and ICU days. They included only hospitals that performed a substantial number of these procedures, so we really could see what the experts' outcomes were. They used propensity matching to get a good comparison between the groups because the differences between the groups was pretty significant, as you would probably expect. Most notably, the systolic blood pressure for patients who underwent Reboa was 77 at time of arrival to the hospital and 53 during the procedure versus zero and zero for those who got a thoracotomy. So basically, those who got Reboa were alive and those who got a thoracotomy were not. Despite, (laughs) Despite starting with a substantial number of patients, they only ended up with 56 pairs that could be matched. And in this small group, they found the mortality was lower with Reboa, 79% versus 93%, with a number needed to treat of 7 to 8. The secondary outcomes favored Reboa as well. Now, Mike discusses these findings at length in the full segment, which you should probably listen to if you're interested in this. The main concern with this study is really just comparing Reboa to ED thoracotomy in the first place. These procedures are generally done on wildly different patient populations, and that can be seen in this paper. The Reboa was done on patients who were alive, so they had, you know, better mortality. Crazy. (laughs) Even in the patients that were alive stayed more alive. Right, exactly. So even in these major trauma centers where they're doing both procedures, more than we're doing in other regular shops, they are applying these procedures to different populations, which makes the take-home point of comparing the two a little challenging to apply broadly. For more on Reboa, listen back to the MRAP 2018 December segment on Trauma Surgeons Gone Wild. Paper number three, VV116 versus Nermatrelvir-Ritanavir for oral treatment of COVID-19. 
Remdesivir is an FDA-approved treatment for COVID, but it's an IV infusion which makes accessibility challenging. Nermatrelvir ritanavir, aka Paxlovid, is oral, but not everyone can qualify for it, and there are many drug-drug interactions which limit the prescribability. In comes VV116, which is essentially an oral version of remdesivir. This non-inferiority study published in the New England Journal of Medicine compares five-day courses of these two medications in symptomatic adults with mild to moderate COVID-19 at high risk for progression. The authors found VV116 to be non-inferior with a time to sustained clinical recovery of four days compared to five days with Paxlovid. No one died and no one progressed to severe disease. Adverse events were 10% lower with VV and it's worth mentioning that 25% of the Paxlovid group got a bad taste in their mouth compared to only 4% of the other group. They also did not collect data on rebound, which we know is a thing with Paxlovid. One problem with the study is that there was no comparison to placebo. So while VV116 may work as well as Paxlovid, do they both work better than nothing at all, especially in vaccinated patients? Let's remember that the COVID of today is not the same COVID as yesteryear. That's exactly a great take-home point and really leads well into the next paper we're going to talk about, paper number four, Nermatrelvir plus Ritanavir, okay, Paxlovid, we're going to just use that, for early COVID-19 in a large U.S. health system, a population-based cohort study. This paper looks at observational data from the Massachusetts General Brigham System during the COVID Omicron wave, so between January and July of 2022. They included patients who were older than 50, diagnosed with COVID, and not hospitalized within their first day of diagnosis, and they wanted to evaluate Paxlovid use, since the drug has generally been reserved for patients with a risk factor for decompensation due to their COVID infection. The authors used a multivariate adjustment using a lot of different variables, including immunocompromised states and vaccination status, so they could really get a good comparison. The primary outcome was a composite of hospitalization within 14 days or death within 28 days, and they found it in about half a percent of the Paxlovid group and about 1% of the no-treatment group. While this was statistically significant, it actually comes out to a number needed to treat of 250. For the variety of subgroups looked at, the improvement was really modest at best, with the exception being a number needed to treat of 50 for unvaccinated patients. So... Take from this what you want. A number needed to treat of 250 is not super impressive, particularly for an expensive drug. As the severity of COVID seems to have decreased, the utility of this medication may not be what it once was, at least with our current variants. I will probably continue to offer it, however, for our higher-risk unvaccinated patients. You know, what's interesting is that Mike and Sanjay were talking about how Paxlovid costs about 500 per treatment. So it's about 125000 to prevent one admission. Right. You know, and they were saying that that seems excessive. But the question is, how much is an admission? You know, I, I, I don't know. Like, if you have a very yeah. sick patient, if they're in the ICU or who knows, I don't know. It might cost as much. Yeah, true. The cost-benefit analysis is, is not gotten into in this paper, but it is an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. All right, paper number five, Validating the Brain Injury Guidelines, Results of an American Association for the Surgery of Trauma Prospective Multi-Institutional Trial. Patients with TBIs and head bleeds typically get admitted, have repeat head CTs, and a neurosurgery consult. But do they really need all that? 
The Brain Injury Guidelines, big for short, was developed to more effectively and safely utilize these healthcare resources. This was a large multi-center prospective observational external validation of these guidelines. Big has three categories, with Big 1 being the most mild and Big 3 the most severe. Criteria for Big 1 include a normal exam, no intoxication, no anticoagulation, no skull fracture, and a bleed less than 4 millimeters. They recommend that these patients get observed for six hours and then discharged. Big 2 gets admitted, but without repeat imaging or consultation, and Big 3 gets everything. No patient in Big 1 and less than 1% of Big 2 would have had clinical deterioration, and 1% and 7% would have had progression of their bleed, respectively. But none of them would have needed neurosurgical intervention. The authors state that if their protocol had been followed, over 400 repeat head CTs would have been spared, 500 neurosurgical consultations avoided, and 400 prolonged hospitalizations prevented. Before implementing something like this, we would need to see additional external validation and, of course, need to get your neurosurgeons on board. Paper number six, outcome of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation use in severe accidental hypothermia with cardiac arrest and circulatory instability, a multicenter prospective observational study in Japan. This is called the ICE crash study. I kind of like that. So it's a prospective multicenter study of 36 EDs, and they looked at adult patients with accidental hypothermia and included only patients with cardiac arrest or circulatory instability. They wanted to see if there was a mortality difference between patients who were treated with ECMO versus other rewarming techniques. They further subdivided their cohort of patients into those who had the frank cardiac arrest compared to those who just had circulatory instability, which they defined as systolic blood pressures less than 60 or heart rates less than 50 on arrival. They had a variety of outcomes, including their primary outcome, like I said, was mortality, and then secondary outcomes, including things like ICU-free days, ventilator-free days, procedural complications, and of course, they looked at survival with favorable neurological outcomes, which is important. Surprise, surprise, rewarming occurred much faster in the ECMO group. Overall survival rate was similar between the two groups. However, there was an improved survival rate and improvement in secondary outcomes for patients with frank cardiac arrest who were treated with ECMO. This is now the second study showing an association between ECMO and favorable outcomes in patients with hypothermic cardiac arrest. We covered the other one a few months back on EMA. Neither one is a trial, so certainly some selection bias could muddy the results a little, but this does seem like a very promising setting for ECMO use. If you have it as an option where you work, I'd give them a call for your next hypothermic arrest or, or maybe even your peri-arrest patient. You know, it's interesting. So we did, I, I remember I reviewed it when we did our EMA in December, you mm -hmm. know, of this year. And what we talked about is that it makes sense, you know, with ECMO, because you're not only getting the core rewarming, but you're also getting the blood oxygenation and mechanical circulatory support that you're not getting otherwise. So, you know, I think this makes sense. Yeah, I totally agree. It Physiologically, it makes sense. Obviously, it's resource intensive for patients who may or may not end up with a good outcome, but we do know that a hypothermic cardiac arrest, you know, there's the hypothermia of the brain, you know, it's doing some protective, neuroprotective stuff to have been that cold. So it's probably worth a shot, I think. All right, sounds good. Paper number seven. Bullous skin signs and laboratory surgical indicators can quickly and effectively 
differentiate necrotizing fasciitis from cellulitis. Identifying neck fasci can be challenging. You need a high index of suspicion, and time is of the essence. The Lorenic score has been proposed to help identify neck fasci, but hasn't really panned out. The authors in this Chinese study identified five diagnostic indicators to help differentiate cellulitis from necrotizing fasciitis, which include hemorrhagic bullae, white blood cell count greater than 11, CRP greater than 100, any bands, and a systolic blood pressure less than 90. Two or more of these, and you had a higher likelihood of neck fasci. We need to see some external validation here, but I think it's safe to say if you have a hypotensive patient with hemorrhagic bullae, get surgery on board stat. Absolutely. One of the things that I really like about some of these decision rules as they're making them to help us you know, with our algorithms and things is if nothing else, they just remind you of the things that might be in play for this, whatever diagnosis it is you're looking at, right? So this reminds you, you know, hypotension, bands, hemorrhagic bullae, bad. That's bad. Get things right. moving In fact, quickly. I would go so far as to say is that if you've got a really sick patient with a skin and soft tissue, anything, you yes, should have... Just, just get yeah. your surgeon. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Like something bad's going on, right? Something bad's going on. Paper number eight. Comparison of non-operative versus operative management in pediatric Gustillo-Anderson type 1 open tibia fractures. So for background, the Gustillo-Anderson system classifies open fractures into type 1, which have a laceration that's less than a centimeter and no crushed tissue, or type 2 wounds, which have a 1 to 10 centimeter and moderate tissue damage, and type 3, which are large contaminated crushed injuries. Traditionally, we think of all three of these types, even those type 1s, as an orthopedic emergency in need of immediate antibiotics and OR for washout. This is a retrospective study from a single site looking at non-union infection and refracture rates among kids with these grade 1 open tibia fractures, comparing those who were treated with and without operative intervention. It's a small study, and the kids taken to the OR very clearly had worse injuries and there were essentially no methods discussed for their chart review. So the fact that the OR patients had a higher infection rate than the non-operative patients is really hard to interpret. As ER docs, we don't determine the ultimate treatment plan for these patients anyways. For now, I would continue to consult your orthopedic colleagues, but be aware that this all-open-fractures-need-a-washout rule could be challenged in future orthopedic literature. Yeah, that's fine. I'm calling ortho, and, you know, I'm just going to be like, as per orthopedics, no. Exactly. <laughs> that is what Surgery. I do. Washout is not required. <laughs> we'll defer to their expertise. Exactly. Paper number nine, clinical characteristics and illness course based on pathogen among children with respiratory illness presenting to an emergency department. This was a post hoc analysis of a randomized control trial that evaluated respiratory panels among kids presenting with URI symptoms. About 85% of the roughly 1,000 kids tested positive for a pathogen, and 25% had multiple ones detected. The risk of hospitalization was two and a half to three and a half times higher with RSV, human metanumavirus, and human rhinovirus. Children with RSV, parainfluenza, and atypical bacteria had longer illness duration, and higher illness severity was seen with RSV human metanumavirus, and atypical bacteria. Not really sure how exactly this helps us, 
but I suppose if RSV lights up, I'll have a little bit more concern. Sure. This is kind of similar to a paper we covered, I think it was last month, on the duration of different symptoms with the different viral illnesses in pediatrics. And the big take-homes I had from that one are, are kind of similar to at least one of them from this, which is that many of the kids had multiple viruses, so that's not too shocking. Right. And that the disease course just is a lot longer, I think, than we really, A, want it to be and B, kind of expected it to be before these papers, I think. Paper number 10. Coronary artery disease among patients admitted with atrial fibrillation and chest pain. This paper attempts to answer a good clinical question. If my patient had an episode of AFib that was associated with chest pain, do I need to be worried about that chest pain being coronary artery disease, or can I send them on their way once I've controlled their AFib? It's a single-site retrospective study of 57 consecutive patients who were admitted with an episode of AFib and chest pain. And the authors were hoping to identify signs or symptoms that were associated with an increased risk of obstructive coronary artery disease. Unfortunately, the only things that were statistically correlated with an increased probability of CAD were elevated troponins and regional wall motion abnormalities on their echo, which I think you would probably agree is kind of obvious to be increasing your probability of CAD <laughs> since it's a trope and a wall motion abnormality. So. I don't think this really does much for me. All right, paper 11. Improving duration of antibiotics for skin and soft tissue infections in pediatric urgent cares. IDSA guidelines recommend five to seven days of oral antibiotics for common skin and soft tissue infections. About one-third of all pediatric outpatient prescriptions exceed this recommended duration. These authors sought to increase compliance in their peds urgent cares through clinical education, modification of the EHR, and regular feedback. The number of prescriptions that complied with the guidelines increased by 25% from 60 to 85. Not too bad. Not too bad. I like that. The fewer antibiotics we prescribe and the shorter the course we prescribe, as long as it's appropriately long enough, you know, the better. So I am not shy about looking up how long I should be prescribing antibiotics for because I don't want to do too much and I don't want to do too little. Agree. Paper number 12, buprenorphine versus methadone for opioid use disorder in pregnancy. This study uses a large Medicaid data set and identifies pregnancies that resulted in a live birth in which the fetus was exposed to methadone or bup. The primary outcome was the development of the neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is just essentially opioid withdrawal in the first few days of life, as well as some other markers of neonatal health, including birth weight, preterm birth, need for C-section, and maternal complications. Outcomes significantly favored buprenorphine. Rates of neonatal abstinence syndrome, preterm birth, and low birth weight were all lower in the bup group. We are very unlikely to be the clinicians prescribing these medications for pregnant women, but we certainly can be involved in the counseling, advising, and referring, so I still think this is good to know about. All right, bup for the win. Paper number 13, sodium polystyrene sulfonate versus sodium zirconium cyclosilicate for the treatment of hyperkalemia in the emergency department. Hyperkalemia is associated with significant morbidity and mortality. Treatment includes stabilizing the cardiac membrane, shifting potassium into the cells, and eliminating it from the body. One way to do this is through a cation exchange resin which works by exchanging calcium or sodium for potassium in the GI tract so you can, you know, poop it out. 
Historically, all we've had was sodium polystyrene sulfonate, aka K-exalate, but more recently, sodium zirconium cyclosilicate came on the scene, Localma. This study compared the two and found that efficacy was similar with both, lowering the serum potassium by 1.1 milliequivalents per liter. For more on this topic, take a listen to the MRAP March 2020 Pharmacology Rounds on Potassium Binders. I mean, A plus for pronunciation on all of that, Jess. That was Thank really you. well done. Thank you. Now, <laughs> I, I think that this is, I like this paper. And my nephrologists in my shop have really seemed to move toward the, I'm going to go with Localma because I, I don't think I can say that set of words. I think Localma has less diarrhea also. I mean, you're still pooping it out, but not quite as aggressively or uncomfortably for the patient. So if it's if it's good, you know, it might be something that patients are a little bit more compliant with. All right. Paper number 14, reducing diagnostic errors in the emergency department at the time of patient treatment. This paper introduces a new concept for me, but one that's apparently in use in parts of Australia and the UK. In this system, when a radiology technician shoots an x-ray, he or she will place a preliminary interpretation of that x-ray in the chart. This is not the physician radiologist. This is the technician who shot the x-ray. This study compares the diagnostic accuracy of that technician interpretation with that of the ED clinician and compares them both to the final radiologist interpretation. The idea being, if the x-ray can be read well by the tech and or the ED physician, Perhaps the patient can be safely discharged on these readings and save time or money for those sometimes delayed radiology reports. They found that both the radiographer, the technician, and the ED clinician had pretty good sensitivity, 98% for the tech, 95% for the doc. So when they saw something, it truly was there. Both had lower sensitivity, about 80% overall, 82% for the clinician, 80% for the tech. Both groups had worse performance with pediatric studies, which, you know, probably pretty predictable. And also, as one could expect, when they were combined, when you put the two sets of interpretations together, two sets of eyes on the imaging, the sensitivity increased to 90%, but with a little bit of loss of specificity. This is interesting, but I'm not sure how this would fare in the medical legal climate of the U.S., you know, having the technician interpreting the x-ray. And I also just don't love the idea of cutting back any further than we already have on radiologist staffing. It's an entire medical specialty for a reason. I would really love to retain access to their expertise on my shifts. Thank you very much. Yeah, I have to say, you know, I totally agree with you, right? It's the, like, the legal system is not necessarily the same, right? right. It's not the big bone fracture that I'm necessarily worried about. You know, mm -hmm. it's these little pulmonary nodules, right? right? Incidental and findings. It's these incidental findings, right? It's not the thing that you're looking for. It's the mm -hmm. thing that's going to like turn, blow up into a huge cancer down the line. And in the States, guess what? Everyone is going to get pulled in. So, you know, I I'm not that comfortable with like the techs calling these out. And to be quite frank, I really respect our radiologists. And exactly. I appreciate the years and years and years they've studied this. And as you said, you know, I prefer them on my shifts. Thank you yes. very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Paper 15, CT utilization and evaluation of skin and soft tissue extremity infections in the ED retrospective cohort study. 
Most skin and soft tissue infections are diagnosed by history and physical exam alone. If worried about more complicated infections, we may add in some labs and occasionally imaging. This study looked at CT utilization in the ED for this indication. Out of almost 5,000 patients, 6% had a history of IV drug use and about a third were admitted. So this sounds like a pretty sick cohort. 7% got a CT and of those, about a quarter demonstrated a possible deep space or necrotizing infection. Patients with a history of IV drug use were more likely to get a CT, more likely to have a worrisome infection, and more likely to go to the OR. Getting a CT added time to the ED length of stay, almost doubling it if the patient was discharged. Interesting info, but this is a retrospective study. So we don't know why these patients got a CT in the first place. Did the ordering clinician do it because the patient looked sick? Because it sounds like a lot of these patients were sick. Looked sick. Were they, right? Were they uncertain of the diagnosis? Or did surgery ask for it after being called? Regardless, never delay consultation for imaging. And when you suspect neck fash, call a surgeon. Hey, that's a point times two on this exactly. EMA. <laughs> exactly. Paper number 16, a quality improvement initiative to reduce abdominal x-ray use in pediatric patients presenting with constipation. This literally just came up on a shift of mine last week, so I'm very glad to be covering this topic. The quick take is this. Constipation is not a radiographic diagnosis, and all the guidelines agree on it. I could pretty much stop there, but I'm going to tell you about the paper. These authors look at their experience over several years trying to educate their medical community, namely their hospital's gastroenterologists. During the study period, the authors sent emails highlighting society guidelines, they published report cards, and they did targeted interventions on outlier providers who were doing a lot more of the x-rays. By looking at new patients in GI clinic who were referred for constipation and who had abdominal x-rays completed, they were able to determine that they decreased x-ray use from 24% to 11% without any clear evidence of misdiagnosis or adverse events. If you're getting a pediatric abdominal x-ray to look for something else and happen to find a lot of poop, so be it. But remember, poop belongs in the bowel. Seeing poop in the bowel is just a normal finding and doesn't really tell us any more than that there is poop where it belongs. Yeah, I never understood this. Never. Like, I remember being, you know, like, medical student, <laughs> and I was like, why are we doing this? I'm, like, so confused. I know. You know, it's like you're either worried and you need some other form of, of evaluation. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, you need an ultrasound or right. maybe even a CT. But, like, what is an X-ray going to show you? I don't know. All right, paper 17, evaluating urgent care center referrals to the emergency department. So full disclosure here, I am one of the authors on this paper. Hello! <laughs> so this came out of Mayo Clinic, Arizona, and was done with some of my ED colleagues. A shout out to Drs. Rappaport, Lindor, and Yurimov. So patients get referred to the ED from urgent care all the time. But do all of these patients need to be sent? We found that out of 300 cases reviewed, over half the patients did not need resources exclusive to the ED. Some did, including 40% that got advanced imaging, a quarter that got a consult, and 15% that were admitted. In terms of the inappropriate referrals, two-thirds of the abnormal ECGs and 80% of the lacerations 
did not actually require any specific ED care. Some key points in the discussion include having urgent care's focus educational efforts in these areas and implement telehealth technology to either engage specialists such as cardiology or have direct discussions with ED clinicians. Lots of room for improvement here. I love that idea of the calling over to the ED and having a discussion before doing the referral. I mean, that's how we do things, you know, transfers for specialist care. If we want our patient to go from the ED to a different hospital because we need that specialist, we talk to them about it first. That's an interesting concept. I like that. Yeah. And you know what? Like Mike and Sanjay also go on to discuss how these numbers could actually potentially be worse than they are because, you know, when somebody sends a patient from urgent care and they're like, patient needs head CT, you know, very concerning. You're not going to be like, yeah, it's not actually concerning, you know, like right. most of the time. It's very hard gonna... to not do the thing that they were sent to get. Right. Like the worst, and I know we all hate this, is when a patient is sent and be like, rule out meningitis, needs mm-hmm. LP. And mm-hmm. you're like, no, they don't. Mm-hmm. No, they don't. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like now you're trapped. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Paper number 18, Changes in Physician Work Hours and Implications for Workforce Capacity and Work-Life Balance, 2001 to 2021. These authors use the Current Population Survey, which is a massive government survey that looks at 60,000 American households each year for decades to estimate all sorts of things about labor and demographic trends in the U.S. These authors looked at 20 years of data, which included almost 18,000 physician households. The overall number of practicing physicians increased in the U.S. by 31% between 2001 and 2021 but the number of hours worked weekly dropped by 8% over that same time period, from a high of 52.6 hours per week in 2001 to 48.6 hours per week in 2021. This was true for both male and female physicians, but interestingly, the largest drop came from male physicians who were parents. So more dads seem to be working a little bit less. In 2001, They worked an average of about 57 hours per week and are now averaging around 48 hours per week in 2021. Women physicians who are parents had flat work hours at just about 44 hours per week throughout the study period. So no changes for them. Unfortunately, we don't have any specialty-specific data from this survey, but I think it's kind of interesting overall. Maybe some work-life balance is happening. You know, it is interesting, but 57, 48, I mean, it all sounds a lot too many. It's still too many hours. It's still still too too many many hours. All right. Paper 19. Feasibility of patient-controlled analgesia, PCA, for rural and remote transfers. In rural Canada, higher levels of care can be hours away, and transports are mostly provided by BLS paramedics who can't administer opioids or parenteral analgesics. This can be a big problem for patients who require pain meds. This small pilot study aimed to determine if PCAs were a feasible option during transfer. Most of the patients in the study had orthopedic injuries, and the average transfer time was about three and a half hours. The average pain score at the start and end of the trip was 4 out of 10 and less than 4% desatted, which they easily resolved with some supplemental O2. Overall, This seems like a very reasonable option. Although without a control group, it's hard to tell what the actual impact would be compared to something like a long-acting opioid given prior to transport. Okay. 
Paper 20, Conceptualization of Surrogate Decision Makers Among Spokespersons for Chronically Ill Patients. These authors wanted to see if they could explain how the decisions made by a surrogate decision maker don't always align well with the patient preferences. Why are they doing something different than what the patient said they would want? They did this by looking at how the surrogate decision maker viewed their role. It's a qualitative study interviewing the decision makers for patients with serious illness. They asked them to describe what being a surrogate decision maker meant and also asked if they perceived a difference between surrogate decision making and being an advocate, and they recorded and coded their answers. They found that surrogates had four big ideas about what their role meant. First, being the final decision maker. Second, doing what is best for the patient with the general assumption that there is one thing that is the best. Third, respecting the patient's wishes. And fourth, being the patient's voice. Most of the interviewees thought that this was basically the same thing as being an advocate, with a full third of them not able to make any distinction between the two concepts. Mike and Sanjay have a good discussion about this. This really could explain why it seems like surrogate decision makers suddenly are reversing orders, asking us to do everything, because really a lot of what they see their role as being is advocating for the best thing for the patient. And in that process, they might lose sight of the patient's wishes. Really, the patient's wishes was only kind of one of the big four things that they had in mind for what being a surrogate decision maker was, with the other of them really kind of being about doing what's best for the patient. I think it's really important when you're choosing someone to be your surrogate decision maker or your advocate, just make sure that you guys align in terms of, you know, what your goals are, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because when you don't have the capacity to advocate for yourself, you really want to make sure that the person that's doing it for you really knows what you want. Really knows what you want. And so that means you have to have these conversations. These uncomfortable conversations have to be had with that surrogate decision maker because assuming that they're just going to read your mind in this circumstance is, is potentially going to lead you astray. Agree. That brings us to the end of our ultra summary. Can you believe it? Yay! Just, just like that. Just a friendly reminder to get your taxes done if you're listening to this in the beginning of the month. And we'll see you all in May. It's it's time to talk a little natty. Talk a little natty with Ken Milne. Welcome to the April Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. This is Swami here, as always, with my good friend and Uber nerd, Ken Milne. Ken, what's going on, man? Uh, nothing much there, Swami. I uh, just uh, I have a propensity for wanting to talk nerdy to you. Oh, always with the good lead into the topic. So let's dive in since you are clearly chopping at the bit. Last month, we spoke about historical controls. And in that conversation, one of the things that came up was when you were talking about creating that comparator group for the observational study. It's not an RCT. And so you do have to make up that group that you're going to compare them to. And one of the things that you can do or, or researchers can do is propensity score matching. And Ken, I'm going to be honest with you. I have said those words. I'll even claim that I've thought that I knew what those words meant, but I don't think I actually know what those words mean. So let's dive into propensity score matching, starting really basic. What is it? Well, you know, I like to start with definitions. So 
You know, I pulled up the original definition back in 1983 by Rosenbaum and Rubin, who defined propensity score matching as, quote, the probability of treatment assignment conditional on observed baseline covariance. And, you know, really what it represents is an attempt to balance two groups conditionally on the distribution of measured baseline covariance. And propensity score matching, I guess you can think of it as just a a statistical attempt to decrease bias in an observational study and get us to that ever-elusive truth. And I know we've gone through this before, Ken, but it's important for us to state again. When you say bias, you mean not random noise and errors, but something that systematically moves us away from the quote-unquote truth. Yes. And the specific bias that they're trying to minimize in propensity score matching is selection bias. And we've discussed selection bias before on Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. And also, of course, when you're using the term truth in a scientific conversation, we're referring to the best point estimate of an observed effect size with a confidence interval around that point estimate. We touched on this briefly last month when we were talking about those observational studies and how they create those historical control groups. But why do we employ propensity score matching? Why do we need this bit of statistical gymnastics? Well, I'll, I'll back that up a bit and say that evidence-based medicine has three pillars. And these are in no particular order, but the pillar number one, relevant research. Pillar number two, clinical judgment. And pillar number three, patient preferences. And there are limits to each part of those pillars. And one of the limits of evidence-based medicine when it comes to the research is it may be impossible or even unethical to conduct a randomized control trial. And this means we're left with observational data. And propensity score matching can help us statistically adjust the results from this type of study design to increase our certainty of the results. So ideally, we would have a randomized control trial. We take a group of patients, a population, they'd be randomized into the intervention or into the non-intervention arm or the intervention versus the placebo. And that randomization would balance the two groups so that they looked pretty similar, except for the intervention that we're actually studying. But when we have an observational study, we don't get to do that. And you really have to ask the question, why did this patient get picked for the intervention and this patient didn't get picked for the intervention? What are the differences within those patients that really changes the data that we're getting out of it? And you said that sometimes it's impossible or unethical to conduct an RCT. Give us an example there. When would you say it's unethical or or there's going to be ethical issues in conducting an RCT? Well, the classic example I like to give is early versus late antibiotics for someone who has a diagnosis of bacterial meningitis. (gasps) It would be unethical right? To say, listen, um, we think you've got bacterial meningitis. We're going to randomize you into getting antibiotics immediately or randomize you into the, let's delay the antibiotic group. You can see how that would be problematic. And so you're left with observational data and that unadjusted observational data could show that those treated early do worse. And you can see how that could come up in a data set because If someone comes in 
with florid meningitis. I mean, it's so obvious. They hit the door. They've got the fever, the stiff neck, the petechial rations, like whoop, whoop, whoop. This is meningitis, right? They're going to get antibiotics quicker than that person who comes in feeling vaguely unwell, a low-grade fever, some myalgias and stuff like that. That sicker person is going to get those antibiotics quicker. And that person with the milder disease earlier in their disease process will get treated later. But that person with the florid case probably has a higher risk of morbidity and mortality. However, there could also be demographic differences between those two groups, the ones in an observational study that got antibiotics early and those who got antibiotics late. And those could be things like age or comorbidities. And so you can do some statistical adjustments using propensity score matching for that observational data to further mitigate some of these measured confounders to get us closer to comparing apples to apples. And can you mention the bacterial meningitis idea and that we would never do that kind of a study? I think we should also recognize that our research hasn't always been that ethical. And we've talked about the Tuskegee syphilis experiments in the past. These were studies in the 30s where they did exactly the unethical thing, having a treatment that actually worked for syphilis and not offering it to a group in order to study that group. Now, there was obviously no informed consent, et cetera, et cetera, in those kind of studies, but this kind of research was done in the past. But we understand now it is not ethical to do that, and we're not going to perform that type of a study when we clearly know that this is something that's going to benefit the patient. We may not know exactly how much it's going to benefit, but we know giving antibiotics to patients with meningitis or giving penicillin to patients with syphilis is going to be beneficial. And so we're not going to be able to create that study ever to really explore it. And that's where we really do have to deal with these historical controls, these observational type studies. And so essentially, what we're trying to do with propensity score matching is to mitigate against the selection bias that has naturally occurred in the observational groups that we're looking at when we're doing those studies. We're trying to balance some of those covariates when we're creating that comparator group. Yeah, so it, it's trying to move us from comparing apples to oranges to comparing apples to apples. But even with propensity score matching, you can't get to the same level of randomization as an RCT. And you'll be comparing apples to apples if you do some propensity score matching. But you need to remember that there are different types of apples. I mean, you've got mm. Granny Smith apples, you've got Golden Delicious apples, still apples but different types of apples. And those differences between those different groups of apples could be responsible for nudging the results away from that quote-unquote truth. Kenny, have you ever noticed that we talk about food quite a bit on Time to Talk a Little Nerdy? And we, we often talk about apples. I, I grew up on an apple farm. What do you expect? <laughs> I guess you got to go back to what you know. And, and right now I'm thinking I could really go for a Granny Smith. <laughs> <laughs> that is my go-to apple, Ken. I don't know what your go-to apple is, but I like the tartness. Mine's a Mutsu. A mutsu, that's, that's a good apple too. But you know, I'll be honest with you, I'm never reaching for the golden delicious. No, me neither. I'm, I'm a mutsu. <laughs> I, yeah, I like the big meaty one. Oh yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's get back to propensity score magic. And one of the articles that you sent me while I was noshing on some apples was one by Peter Austin entitled An Introduction to Propensity Score Methods for Reducing the Effects of Confounding in Observational Studies, published way back when in 2011. And he describes four different propensity score methods designed to remove the effects of confounding. And I thought we could maybe touch on these. 
Yeah, sure. It's, uh, it's certainly hard to think that 2011 is 12 years ago, though. I think we need to caution both you and the listeners that we shouldn't get too nerdy in this episode because we could head down a rabbit hole. I really think it's important to understand the concept of propensity score matching, but not necessarily for most clinicians to understand the nuances. Yeah, and I think this article was really designed for the budding researcher to understand these different approaches and then as a jumping point to dive into these and know what's appropriate for the study you're putting together. And again, Peter Austin describes these four different methods. We're just going to talk about them a little bit just so that the listeners recognize them when they're looking at the manuscript. And you mean when they read the most important section of the publication, that being the methods section? Of course, of course, is where we should always start. Start with the methods. Let's talk about those four different ones. And the first one is simply called propensity score matching. Yeah, and it's probably the most common type of propensity score matching and the simplest. You create two sets or groups. Uh, It could be the treated versus the untreated or treated with treatment A versus treatment B. And you try to match them up as best as possible. And there's actually different ways that you can do this with just simple propensity score matching. And you can use something called the greedy method or the nearest neighbor. I think the nearest neighbor method sounds so nice, you know. Oh, let's just talk to my neighbor here or we can get really greedy. But there are different ways that you can even do simple propensity score matching. And then Ken, instead of getting into these other three, because, you know, we do have a description of each of these in front of us and we can talk about them. Although some of this information honestly does go over my head as well. And I'm going to pretend that I know what we're talking about. But instead of doing that, we're going to drop some links in the show notes for folks who are interested in getting into these other three methods so they can look there, they can read up on them. Because I'll be honest, Ken, I read about them in the article and then I went to the Wikipedia page and I still kind of walked away saying, I'm not really sure that I know what they're talking about or that I need to know for what I do on a daily basis. Sure. Yeah. The other three are stratification of the propensity score. So you just stratify into groups. Another way to do it is inverse probability of treatment weighting using propensity scores. So you you start assigning a weight and replicating the data set a bit that way to try to uh, eliminate some of the uh, covariance or that they're not linked anymore. And then the fourth method is a covariant adjustment using propensity score. But Again, I, I think, you know, this would torture the listeners. We'd lose most of them. And I'm really not sure they need to know the details here. Yeah, and I guess that's really the question, Ken. Do we need to know those details? Do we need to know exactly which approach to propensity score matching was performed? Does it really matter to the individual clinician? I, I think for most general clinicians reading the medical literature, I really don't think that they need to know which approach of propensity score matching is best for an individual data set. I think you can leave that up to more nerdy people like me or even uber nerdy people like those with PhDs in epidemiology. The idea of propensity score matching does make a lot of sense. So we're going to try to remove that confounding, decrease bias, and make the observational data more useful in guiding our clinical care. That's what we really want at the end of this. Are there guidelines on how we should be doing this, how we should be doing propensity score matching and whether it was done appropriately? Yeah, there are a couple of good articles that I'll throw links into the show notes. One's called Propensity Score Matching, Beginner's Guide to Causal Inference from Observational Data. 
And the other article is called Propensity Score Matching Definition and Overview. And I really think that these, you know, if you're interested in this area, this gives you a, a really good starting point and some background information. All right, Ken, I think we're getting close to that point. Where we're going to wrap up. So let's get the bottom line here. I'm reading an observational study and the researchers say they use propensity score matching to create a comparator group. What should this make me think about when I'm processing that data and incorporating it into my clinical approach? Well, I think you need to ask yourself a series of questions when you're reading a research paper. And the first question I ask is, what's the clinical question these researchers are actually asking? And then is that clinical question relevant to patients? Is an observational study the best way to answer this clinical question? Why not just do a proper randomized control trial? Does the clinical issue represent a parachute, i.e., you know, we can't do a double-blinded placebo-controlled trial of people jumping out of an airplane with a parachute or a backpack. If it was a parachute issue, then I guess we are left with an observational study design. And, you know, even though you're doing a observational study design, you should use the best methods possible for evaluating that and doing propensity score matching. So when you are reading one of these clinical papers and you go, oh, okay, did they do propensity score matching for this observational study? That's a quality checklist question. And at the end of the day, you need to remember, this is still lower quality of evidence than a well-done randomized control trial. We still can't get to comparing Granny Smith to Granny Smith apples. Often the best evidence that we have to guide our care is weak observational data. And so we need to have the humility transparency and honesty to admit, you know what, I don't got a lot to go on, but here's the best way forward from the information we do have. Excellent. I think that's a great way to look at it. And I think one of the big things that I take home from what you just said is when I'm reading an observational study, see if they use the words, we did propensity score matching with our historical control group. If they didn't, that really should set off some alarms in your head of saying, well, they didn't really try to get rid of some of that selection bias and some of those other things that are pushing us away from the truth. And ultimately, that's what propensity score matching is for. As you mentioned a couple of times, it is there to remove bias and move us closer to what the truth is so that we can use that data to better inform us and better take care of our patients in the clinical setting. Ken, thanks so much. And I can't wait to get back next month for May and do our time to talk a little nerdy. I look forward to every one of these episodes, my friend. Hey, guess what? Sorry, I blacked out. It's the April episode. I know. I was and thinking, we forgot to mention April Fool's I Day. I know. I just, so I, but I could do my joke now and say, hey, Mike, oh, bad news. I forgot to push record yes. at the beginning of this thing, even though we're all done now. It's a horrible And event. I'll say it again. I did that with Whitney Johnson when she guessed. I know. And she was like, <laughs> her face turned <laughs> like ghostly colored. It was yeah, terrible. I got to say, you know, th that's one thing that the listenership has really taken to is sending in some jokes and stuff. And we got an email like a few months ago oh, yeah. from like the Grandmaster. Oh, right? April uh, Fool's pranks. Yeah, we yeah. probably shouldn't say their name because in case they're still doing pranks, I don't want to, you know. <laughs> ruin it. Yeah. I don't want to ruin it. But it was like, you know. Elaborate. Those, like penal codes for posts on people's doors yeah. and like whipped cream and hand sanitizer things and we, it was intense hats off respect respect you know who you are if you're <laughs> listening it's much respect on this yeah. end so well i hope 
that everybody's starting to feel the joys of spring, which is a time of the year that I really do love when the days are getting longer and warmer and you can do all sorts of outdoor activity. Of course, by the time this is airing, I'll be post-op on my knee, so I won't be able to do any of those things. But at least the outside environment will help to lift the spirit of a you know recently operated on knee, and then we'll see if uh, you know last year was any predictor of this year. Where pretty much every single day of spring, Rhea would wake up saying, "Daddy, spring has sprung." <laughs> Let's see if she does it again. Let's see. But while we're waiting to see whether or not she's doing that, you all just go ahead and you do what you do, but you stay classy, which is stay classy. <laughs>